Welcome to The Real Score, where we unspool the film reel, slip on our headphones, and discuss the character of music in the movies. I'm Sam Fife, and I'm joined on this wonderful new venture uh, with, of course, my fake nerd co-host, Brandon T. McClure. Hello, I'm here too. I'm here. Look at me. Yay. I just woke up like five minutes ago. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, and also the incredibly talented Jeremy Bellucci, who has worked on all of our musical pieces on the Fake Nerd Network. And we are here for our second episode ever of The Real Score. So welcome, Jeremy. Welcome Sa- Sa- Sam, are you trying to say that Brandon is not incredibly talented? You, you, you introduced me that way. We did introduce him that way. His talents are, are, are different and they're not necessarily uh, doctored around this specific show. So I think, like, I want to yeah. emphasize your musical capabilities because, like, frankly, Brandon and I survive on this show by you knowing things about music that we don't. Well, you guys are screwed this time. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, so appreci- I appreciate it's, that backpedal. That was wonderful. Thank you. It's, it's, uh, it's our second episode. We're getting into another film. Um, I'm just going to roll us into talking about it. Um, we, we've done a lot of set dressing in our previous one. The Batman is out. You can go watch the YouTube video. You can listen to the audio. Uh, we, we kind of talked about our history with film scores there. So we're not going to do a lot of that here. We're just going to kind of get into this movie. Um, so this is... The Mask of Zorro from 1998. Uh, it was written by John Escow, Ted Elliott, and Terry Rossio. Um, it's directed by Martin Campbell. The score for this film is by James Horner. Uh, he's known for other film scores such as Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Aliens, Willow, The Rocketeer, Braveheart, and Avatar, to name a few. Uh, coming off of Titanic, Horner said he sought out this film to do the opposite of what he was doing in Titanic. Uh, he'd never done a Western before and felt that this would be a good opportunity to do that. Now, these are these are his words that he'd never done a Western before. Um, the film features one of Horner's favorite instruments, shakuhachi, a uh, Japanese flute for the first, uh, not for the first time, but uh, one of his most prominent uses of it. Um, specifically noted here uh, is its use in the danger or villain motif. Um, Horner, I also, while I was looking through a lot of interview stuff of this, he has acknowledged that as his four-note theme of death. Now, he didn't title it that, but someone did reference it as that to him, and he acknowledged it that way. Um, now, which prominent- which which. Which piece are you talking about? I was reading that in the notes and I couldn't. I couldn't. Place. That's the. That's the. Da na na na. That that the. Yeah, that. Okay, I, I have stuff to say about that. We'll talk about it later. Right, right. Um, <laughs> uh, another prominent and crucial decision that Horner makes with the score is to use Spanish flamenco dancers rather than drums to make these sword fights more rhythmic. Um, in combination with castanets and guitar, the film score stands firmly in its Latin roots. Horner credited Tony Hinnigan, I wanted to point this out, for putting all the flamenco dancing pieces together and credited him in an interview as a second orchestrator on the film. Uh, Horner and Campbell would reteam again, also with Tony Hinnigan, for 2005's The Legend of Zorro, which uh, in Horner's terms he thinks is a more polished uh, version of the Mask of Zorro score because they frankly trusted him more. Uh, I'm not going to speak too much to the film itself, but the score is something that it keep him talking about maybe want to revisit. Can I can I just quickly say an anecdote uh, yeah. about the Legend of Zorro because I saw that in the notes. Now, Jeremy, I don't know if you remember, but that was I believe the the first movie that you and I saw. Only us, and I mean only us, because there was nobody else in the theater. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I because I think we saw King Kong like as a small group 
first, yeah. right? The Peter Jackson. And then I think it was just us. That we, I was trying to place the timeline. I'm like, did were we really hanging out in 2005? But I guess we were. Which was, for whatever reason, the two of us saw, found ourselves watching The Legend of Zorro in a, in a large theater with nobody else there. I'm so glad that I wasn't imagining that. I, yeah. that that's okay. Thank you. One of my, one of my, favorite, <laughs> one of my favorite memories. Now, Sparks, though. So, Sparks. so, so Legend of Zorro. Sam, sorry. Out. Sorry, I, I wanted to, yeah, <laughs> it's fine. Um, I am Sparks uh, on the Fake Nerd Network. A lot of people are going to know me that way. Uh, oh, man. Yeah, so King Kong was just uh, about a month and a half after Legend of Zorro. No way. Um, so, 2005. Zorro was the first. Wow. Wild. Because I was going to say, like, because, uh, like, the timeline thing, I don't think. I think this was probably just early in in Jeremy and I starting to really know each other. So I was like, why wasn't I at the Legend of Zorro? Yeah, so I'm like, definitely. This kind of answers the question. Yeah. Well, because yeah, I knew I had known Jeremy about maybe a couple of months to a year before I met you, Sam. Yeah, some amount of time like that. Well, no, you guys were in drama class together. That's and, right. And I, then yeah. and then like you introduced us at the end of the school year, and then we were like, let's hang out this summer, and we did hang out that summer. So that's true. yeah. Anyway, there's our history. But so I um, no introductions today. We so I I I I I love the Mask of Zorro. We will never get a chance to review the movie on the podcast. I don't believe unless they make another Zorro movie. So I want to take this moment, just quickly, just two minutes, just to say, man, I really love this movie. I have loved this movie the day this is the day I watched it on VHS, and I have loved it ever since. It's incredible. I I adore this movie. Did you did you not get to see the original in theaters? No, I didn't. That is so sad. I'm so it sorry. It is. It is. I will <laughs> always regret that. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's an incredible film. Uh, I love this movie. I love this movie. Uh, and I think one of the things is, especially when you look at like that last bit I talked about, which is Horner and Campbell all came back for Legend of Zorro. So why is that movie not good? And the answer is the writers. Yep, <laughs> um, it's 100%. very clearly and purely different script writers. And that's all that it came down to um, because you had everyone else in the creative team coming back and, and doing their magic again. Um, I, I think that this is in this era where Hollywood was really loving doing send-ups of classic adventure films and they were really yeah. working you know this is right around the same time as brendan fraser's the mummy which i would hold in kind of the same category of right. film as this uh and and it's it's the thing that works about it and the thing that works about horner's score in it uh is it's so sincere and earnest in its absolute commitment to what it's doing and and being this romantic and I mean romantic with a capital R um, adventure film and we just don't get those anymore I think like the closest you could argue the last one was was maybe the third Pirates but I'd honestly go all the way back to the first mm -hmm. uh, and that would kind of be the last one I think was truly capturing this uh, kind of let's do the classic film adventure but today yeah, this was this was very much like um, very much in the vein. I'm glad you mentioned pirates because this is and mummy. This is a swashbuckling adventure, like with a capital S, as you said, with a capital R. Like this is this is that kind of movie where the where like everyone you, they don't make movies like this. When we hear like people like when you hear people say they don't make movies like this anymore, they don't make movies like this anymore because. And I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing, although I I, I do miss them uh, because films evolve. But like, 
the 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 swelling romantic themes and the two the two characters who just clearly want to bone each other the moment they look at each other and and the the sword fights being so engaging and entertaining and um so it's just you're right about that pirates of the caribbean thing because that might have been the last time this ha- this happened and they try they've tried a few times to bring it back but not to this not to any success well it's joseph campbell isn't it right it's the, the hero's journey like yeah yes. i mean we don't we don't get a, a, lot, a lot of that uh like rigid structure anymore but this one's like to a t to a z uh, you could say with a capital Z, and you should say motif. It. Yes, um, yeah, no. I mean, like you have the you have like the old the old wizened sage that takes the the you know the hero on his journey and all this stuff, and there's redemption and like doubt, and it's like the whole it's the whole thing. It's the same, and 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 the thing is, I think that in Western culture we have this like um, sort of attachment to Joseph Campbell's hero's journey with these like very kind of romantic uh, symphonic development type scores, right? And yeah. and that's the thing that that there's a lot of disconnect if we're talking about music anyway because I think that people still do Campbell, but they don't do the the symphonic side of it. And oh, so yeah, people people are definitely still doing the hero's journey, but you're you're absolutely right like I I would I started thinking more about the point. And I'm like I would make an argument that like one of my favorite last times that I think something like this was attempted in both scope of film and score is John Carter. Which is yeah. why I like John Carter so much, sure. Uh, because it feels like a send up of those. Basically, when they're when they're really, when they're they're not, you know, playing as parody mm-hmm. or self referential of these classic films, but are just like let's take the absolute heart and soul, wear it on our sleeves of those films, and adapt it into the modern way, and that the score follows suit of that filmmaking. Uh, That's a good reference, John Carpenter. <laughs> John Carter. Not Carpenter. No, no, John Carpenter um, no, no, was a really no. good filmmaker. No, I really no, appreciate no. Halloween. Uh, Escape from L.A. By the way, <laughs> real quickly, not to not to not to not to spoil spoil the future, but Halloween may be a future mo- future episode. Um, if I get my way, John Carter will be too. So. <laughs> That's true. But you know, sorry to cut you off, but I was just going to say about, about John Carter that when I, when I picture John Carter, you're right about it being a very similar movie, but I don't get the same aesthetical vibe from it. And I, it, it occurred to me as you were talking about it, that one of the things that I think makes it really diff- difficult to like reach that, that vibe in films so much anymore is that like, we're not on the universal backlot anymore. Like all of our sets are these giant green screen arenas. Yeah. And it, another, another thing that I, 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 this is, this is a deep cut, but I, when I was watching Mask of Zorro today, I was like, man, this reminds me of Briscoe in a lot of, a lot of scenes, Briscoe County Jr. Yeah. Um, and I, and I realized that a lot of it was the cinematography, the way things are framed and, and, and how that pairs with the, with the music. And we just don't, we don't have that kind of cinematography anymore because we're shooting in different spaces. Um, not to make this a, about about camera and cinematography, but like, but like, it's part of it, right? It's hard to decouple from from the the, the how it all works in concert with itself, right? Um, but anyway, yeah, like anyway, John John Carter, cool cool reference. But that's a, yeah. that's a real quickly, great. Briscoe County Junior. Mm-hmm. Great reference, <laughs> dude. His I wish they had explored the relationship between um, between Alejandro and, and Tornado more because he's Comet. It's it's just Comet. <laughs> yeah, nobody's gonna get this reference, but it's wonderful. I love it. You know, like two or three might. 
If they grew up in the 90s, they'll, they'll know that, that show. Um, X-Files. I, I think what's so accurate about what you're saying, Jeremy, uh, with the cinematography and everything is, is because, from a visual standpoint, clearly just even before Horner's score comes to touch it, the film is crafted to think about these characters in the same sweeping yes. uh, and emotional strokes that classic films were. There's yeah. a lot of framing devices here that are stylized that way, even if they're using more modern tools. It's the mm-hmm. way that yeah. they're showing landscapes. It's the way that they're yeah. showing crowds. It's the way that they're mm-hmm. showing close-ups. It's all it's all designed in that same way. Catherine Zeta-Jones even has the old school I know, I know. Blo- bloom blur filter on her in comparison there's, to the rest of them. There's oh, an boy. interesting... There's an interesting look. Also, there's many times where, like, Diego de la Vega is, uh, you know, he's framed with the classic, like, just the light on the eyes and the shadow <laughs> on top. And, and there's a lot of that. And then, you know, you look at, like, the matte paintings, the matte paintings. Yeah, in this, in this the movie. matte paintings. When cool. a tornado in Zorro, like, runs up, the, runs up the stairs and the sunset is, is, just, is just, like, right, just right above the hacienda and Zorro is in the sunset. Like, it's such a, it's such a classically filmed movie. And that it, it, quite, it quite frankly works so well because of to, right. to piggyback off what you're saying, um, you know, how and how these things all work in concert in, uh, with each other. This definitely um, alludes to how somebody's going to score a picture. Right. Like when yeah. they when they when they're looking at the dailies at the, and the pictures and stuff like how you approach scoring those types of shots is different than how you're going to approach, uh, you know, scoring something that's got like a tracking shot through moving through a, you know, a, a digital space that can just, you know, go anywhere you want it to. Right. You know, you have to make the music move in conjunction with the picture. We have new technology now that allows us uh, to, to see the way that through the camera a lot differently. So music is going to adapt to it differently. So it's really difficult to say that we're going to get this kind of, movie ever again unless somebody commits really wholeheartedly to filming it that way mm-hmm. but um but yeah so it's, it, it was interesting revisiting this because you know I, I i get all i get all up on my high horse and pretentious about a long form symphonic development and um this is a movie that just that that's the time period that's what they were doing so that it's just it's just a you just you know you reach your hand into the ocean pull up you know this this is the, the it's a terrible metaphor, but anyway, <laughs> it's, it's it's that kind of, it's that kind of thing where it's like you know you can you can throw a dart and hit and hit any movie that did it in that in that period of time. Sure. So this is one of those movies, right? Exactly. Yes, uh, I think I think you're very apt in that. Which is it's it's very of a piece with its contemporaries, but it's you know we're it's the 25th anniversary of this film this year. Oh, is it? Yeah, that's yeah. one of the reasons we're doing it. Oh. And uh, and looking looking back 25 years and like. A lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of appreciation for it being unique by today's standards now, uh, where you're correct. I think, like, at the time, it's very, like, yeah, it's of a piece. I mean, it still has a unique flavor to it, and we'll mm-hmm. get into why. But uh, this was the way that they made film scores. Yeah. And now that's that's not as true, and I think there's benefits to that, because, like, you've got, like, things where a film score can be made entirely with synth sounds at this point, and, like, like people are more freewheeling about what they will do. Um, and that can be a benefit and that can also be a drawback depending on what, who the composer is and what the film is that we're talking about. Yeah. Well, you get a lot, like a, a lot of composers these days who are kind of more producer minded because we have 
technology and the way that we can produce sound now, not just like from a, but like the, the, the speakers, <laughs> like mm-hmm. when you go back to like the 1940s, everything's coming. <laughs> so like there were no bass drops back then because like, well, it's not going to sound like anything yet to convey everything with a much more like structured storytelling kind of way. And so as our technology for, um, you know, creating sound and, 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 and making you feel sound has improved, um, the burden becomes less on the composer because you can just go and make people go, whoa, you know, like it's, yeah. it's a different, different world altogether. Right. I, I, I want to say before we get further into it that I've, I've been a, a longtime fan of James Horner. Um, I really, I remember kind of early on, I obviously like John Williams was like the first composer that I really kind of latched on to as he was for many of our generation. But James Horner was like the second, like for whatever reason, like as, as I was watching like Titanic, the mask of Zorro aliens, like I really started to hear his sound and be like, Oh, who did this? It can't be John Williams. He can't compose all the movies. So who's Mm -hmm. this? And so that, that kind of, that kind of as like early film score interest will form, um, I, he was the next composer I kind of looked at. It's funny you say that because, you know, I'm so much better being a composer. No, I'm just kidding. But I, <laughs> but, but as a composer, um, as somebody who does music, um, when I think back on the impact that certain movies or film score composers had on me, they almost exactly the same. It was like, wow, Star Wars is my entire life. Indiana Jones. Damn that too. And then, I think the first Horner score I heard was Land Before Time. Sure. And wow. like, yeah, yeah. Boy, you know. That's not it. Whatever. It's a seventh. It's a seventh <laughs> somewhere. There it is. Okay. Anyway, so um, that score still makes me cry every single time, you know, share this post if you agree. And... Um, then I think I heard Jumanji, um, also another great score, which, you know, like, I, I don't think people remember how good that score is. It's really good. Um, oh, hell. Right, oh, right. yeah. Right. Shit. Jumanji, Jumanji. Does it's, great it's, score. it's sick. That's a sick thing. Anyway. Um, and wait, wait, real quickly, I want to pause you real quickly because like you, you, I was thinking. I was thinking to myself, like, "Oh, what? Is, you know, Jumanji does have a good score, but I can't remember it for the life of me." And you played that. I was like, "Holy shit!" <laughs> it comes oh, back, right? No. You, you picture little Alan Parrish on that bike, right? You know, yeah. It's a, it's a good score. Um, and you know, like it, it just kept going like that. I just kept hearing Horner scores that I liked. Um, and and still to this day, you know, I go back and and, and I and I find new ones where I'm like, "Oh wow, Horner!" And he always seems to bring to the table a theme. I think um, our, our friend Luigi. Uh, uh, put it best. He said his themes feel like a gentle, warm hug. They do. You know, it's just kind of like, oh yes, wrap me up in your embrace. You know, it just—it's so they're so like calming and ethereal and gentle. They make you—they—they right. they make you feel safe. Right. Um, so that's right. going to make all the next things that I'm going to say about James Horner uh, feel uh, really out of left field. But um, <laughs> I got a lot to say about it. <laughs> uh, I, I think uh, I just want to comment on a couple of things there, because like in looking at this, looking at some of Horner's career, um, to me, I feel like there's a lot of good scores all over the place. But I think where he's at his best is probably this era between 1995 oh. to 2005. I think that's like the strongest selection of scores. You've got Jumanji in there. You've got <laughs> I didn't realize until I was looking at it for this project, Casper. 
Yeah, Casper. Um, which yeah. is one I love. Uh, uh, and just like you said, this kind of creation of theme and everything in it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so uh, real quickly, I just want to say, like, I did a, just to finish, real quickly, just finish my thought. The, like, Star oh, yeah. Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, which you brought up, Sparks, uh, Sam, whatever, uh, earlier in this, uh, in this episode, I did a paper on that on that score because I took a film score class in college and I did a paper on that movie. I love that movie to death. And I, so, and being able to like really just like dive into James Horner's score was such a treat. And I, I he's got a really good Star Trek two score. I think I love the Klingon theme. I think it's like whole tone or something. That's yeah. Jerry Goldsmith though. No, 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 no. I'm thinking of the Horner thing. No, Goldsmith composed the, the, the Klingon thing. I, ha- I don't, I, don't, don't, you know me. I know, but I, I have a, I have a reason for, 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 I mean, I'd have to go back and listen to Goldsmith's music, but I, I, I do have a reason why that might not be true. Hmm. Uh, we'll yeah, we'll talk about it later. It doesn't put matter. Star it's, Trek, it's put Star Trek on the list, Sparks. We're talking about Star No, I'm kidding. Oh, um, go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> continue with what you're saying. Um, yeah, so I think this is a good point to kind of transition into what, yeah, let, let's, let's talk about what the core of this film score is, which is theme, just as Jeremy said. Um, there is a there is a theme, a prominent theme is laced throughout the entire film. But while it is a singular theme, I would argue that I think it serves three specific purposes and it sounds different depending on which purpose it's supposed to serve. And those three ser- purposes are romantic, action and adventure. You got the, um, the adventure one. I forgot how it goes now. I did it. Talking Whatever. about we'll specific examples, but like it really, really trying to think about it, really looking at it, I'm like, this is the same theme, but the choice of instruments and the variation in speed, I mm-hmm. think, defines like what is the purpose of this. The, um, the harmonic context is usually what's d- driving the the like emotional flavor of a piece. Right. Like at what I like a couple of just like brief examples. We'll probably get into them in more detail. But when um, Alejandro is like in that uh, prison. Right, the first time that he's kind of acting as Zorro, and he's he's, he's kind of like clumsy tornado, about it. The, the tornado, tornado in the barracks. Tornado yeah. in the barracks. Yeah. During that scene, we hear the theme, but right. it's not presented majestically. It's presented right. almost a little goofy, you know. Yeah. Right, and that's that's all in the, the like the the cadences and the, the harmonic context uh, more than anything. You know, the way right. that that it's being supported. Right, that would Same be melody. in in my mind. I thought of that as like the fun action version. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And uh, so so we'll get into that. Horner's known for um, copying himself being inspired by other pieces of music and, and porting that over. Um, yeah, big quotation marks from Jeremy on that one. Um, but I think that is a good way to talk about, and I will say, like, I would say that this is, this, me listening to it, I think this is inspiration more than it is stealing. 
Um, I think uh. that uh, <laughs> for the specific for the specific part I'm about to talk. Okay, about, sure, 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 sure. Um, <laughs> where the theme that runs throughout the film, I think, uh, takes inspiration from the work of. Um, and he's said this uh, from yeah. from Miklo Rosa's uh, work on the 1961 film El Cid. And I, uh, I listened to that, too, in preparation. I Yeah, yeah definitely more inspired than definitely that's, not stolen. That's what I mean. He's not sure, like sure, sure, stealing sure, sure. it, but you can hear where he's inspired by it. And so Horner, yeah. Horner deemed this the greatest Spanish influenced Hollywood film score at the time that he was making Mask of Zorro. So he went back to it and he listened to it and and took very clear inspiration from it. You can hear the the beginning of what will be the theme uh baked into it there's definitely a foundation there mm -hmm. but i think he does take it in his own direction away from the elsid work sure i mean horner while being you know kind of infamous for for um recycling borrowing lifting whatever you call it um it, he doesn't typically put that right into the theme he doesn't bake it right into the loaf you know he's kind of he's kind of more going to do that during like specific sorts of cues um, though I will say in this movie, there was one thing, I mean, I don't know how, what order we want to talk about things in, but, um, you know, what, what, what order are we going to talk about things in? Do we, do we want well, to talk I've about got, the bad I've guy got, theme? You, you've got what uh, you can see on the dock is how I'm kind of going to Oh, sure. Let me, through. so where um, are but we? But if you want to, if you want to jump to something specific, that's always okay. Yeah. So, okay. Let's, let, 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 I'll just bring it up since we're, since we're probably going to, we're going to step in it at some point. Um, the four note theme of death. Right. Sure. Which all over the movie, any time, any time, um, I can't remember his name, the bad guy. Well, Love. Captain Love. Cap no, not Love. Montero. Montero. Anytime, a lot of times when Montero's on the, on the screen, uh, you hear that. I guess Captain Love too, but like it's, 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 it's just bad guy stuff, right? Go and reach for it, Captain. Who are you? I warned you long ago, Raphael. You would never be rid of me. Captain, um, Captain Love really only has it in relation to being with Alejandro. Yeah, if he's sure. not with Alejandro, it's not there. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, that four note theme of death is note for note in in uh in delivery and orchestration every every single bit of it uh Rachmaninoff's first symphony that's it, how mm -hmm. it starts that's it's yes. that's it <laughs> and yeah. this is not the only time he's used that oh god it's no in land before time it's in willow it's i it i think it's in star trek wrath of khan like it's everywhere it's one of his favorite things to Titanic. do probably Titanic. i didn't go back to listen to type sure Avatar is just glory, by the way. The theme to glory is this is the same same theme. <laughs> this is one of the only times where he's like reused a whole theme, but it's the exact same theme. Oh my god, you're so right. I know, I know. Oh no. I know, it's gonna start to ruin it for you, but that's the same theme. Um anyway, yeah, and so it's just interesting because he 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 was talking about it in the interview and, and it became something that somebody brought up and it's like, oh, it's the four-note theme of death. It's death. It's like this would have been a time. This would have been your time, James, to say, "Oh, that's just Rachmaninoff." I just, I just borrowed. <laughs> I don't, I don't know that he's been that. I would have to look beyond this film to like mm -hmm. all of what Horner said about this. But like, I don't think he's been that secretive about taking things from 
He's not previous symphonies and, and but he like always that. he always rationalizes it in a very pretentious way. Sure. <laughs> sometimes with a British accent and sometimes not. Isn't it? Isn't it like <laughs> uh, with this idea that um, this is the way to get people to listen to to true classical music because you're not going to be able to get most modern pe- audiences to sit in a concert, and so you have to incorporate it into film to get them interested in it. I haven't heard I haven't heard him say that specifically, but I I feel like I've heard him say that. (laughs) What I've heard him say is that uh, paraphrasing, of course, along the lines of, you know, well, Stravinsky or Schumer already said this thing so perfectly. So I just I just referenced him because I'm a I'm a musicologist and and he is he's he was a walking encyclopedia for this stuff. So not to discredit him, it's. You have to know your shit to steal it like this. I, I couldn't steal all that stuff, right? So, like, it, props. It's just also kind of weird because the man can write, like, really well. And you don't see this very much in other composers. Like, there's totally borrowing and, and, in, and like, like, taking inspiration. Like, I, I love pointing out King's Row by Korngold as the inspiration for Star Wars because it's almost note for note up to a point. And then it takes on its own its own life, um, but it's not directly lifted from that, yes. right? Yes. I mean, I could I could cite maybe three dozen examples across Horn, and there's more. There's more than that, but just off the top of my head, like three dozen examples of like where Horner has directly <laughs> lifted every piece of the music and put it into the into the into the score. So it's just it's just weird, you know. It's just something that like I've had to grapple with because he's one of my biggest inspirations. Like he was one of the guys that got me into music altogether, like let alone film scoring. It was one of the, you know, like, like land before time was one of the things where it's like music makes you feel things. So, and so, and so to the point of what I was saying that I'm pretty sure I've heard him say, maybe not the exact words I was paraphrasing, but of, of this thought of putting it in there. So modern audiences are exposed to it. His logic seems to be that people should hear this music. Yeah. And people aren't hearing this music. Sure. So how can I put this music out there? And thus, and like, I'm not, that's, I'm not saying whether that's good or bad. I'm saying sometimes that seems like that's his intent is like, how can you get absolute classical symphonic sound that should be heard out to these audiences? Well, the only way now is through film. Um, And that's very nice. It is interesting um, that Horner is so blatant and consistent about taking this stuff and, and doing so much repetition and, and lifting. Um, mm-hmm. You're right. Like it, but no other composer is known for doing it anywhere near as much as Horner mm-hmm. and yet also composing very incredible stuff of his own. And so it's like, yeah. I don't know. Where do you land with this? <laughs> yeah. Like, I, like I would, I would see that more if it was like, that, you know, like in done in the, the Kubrick way of like 2001 A Space Odyssey, where like the music is just put in there. Right. But like, you, put, you just take take a, like a, a whole orchestration and just put it kind of under your theme. Why not just do something kind of like that? I don't know. I, look, I'm not, I don't want to get too like, like, like bogged down in this because, because we're talking about one movie, but it is just something that's worth noting. And like where I fall on it, I, I forgive James Horner for all this stuff, by the way, I'm not, I'm not bitter about it. I, it's just, it's just a really interesting thing to talk about as long as we're talking about him, that this is all over his movies and you can't, 
watch one of his uh, or listen to one of his scores without finding something directly taken from classical uh, literature. So it's it's just like you know something something to discuss. So what's interesting is I never knew about that that you know the da 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 but I never knew like. Thank you. Um, I never knew that was from classical music. I thought I thought Horner uh, composed that, and um, and I'm not saying it's right. I'm just giving this perspective. Yeah, um, this is that, actually valuable, right? That I I but I always heard it in almost every one of his movies. Mm-hmm. So I always just thought it was his composition. So I never knew that he took it from somewhere else. And I find that very fascinating to learn that. I've literally just learned that now while I'm listening to you guys. And what a, what an interesting point. You know, piggybacking off of James Horner's point that it's like, well, it's a, it's a way for people to hear this music. Yeah, but James, now everybody thinks you wrote that. That's you know, point. <laughs> James. I mean, ideally, James. Ideally, if I looked into it, I would have learned eventually. But um, sure, but sure. you're right. Not not a lot of people are like me who are who have this interest in film scores and would find and would find that out on their own. They would mm-hmm. just think that oh. James Horner, and even like even people who don't really have an ear for film scores, because we know people, the hell on the podcast, not to call it Ben, um, <laughs> who, don't, who don't really care about film scores, not in that, not in this kind of way of like, well, it doesn't really, it doesn't really like um, register to, hit, to 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 people on the sense of like, oh, well, this is this is film music. This is why Hans Zimmer has become so popular, right? Because the general public don't, can't really distinguish the difference between film scores sure. really. Sure. Um, and so he has like three film scores a year and everyone just thinks this, it's, it's, it's him. Right. Um, and he, and, and so you have this like idea that like you would go under the radar because film score literacy is kind of at an all time low. Mm, it sure is. You know, not because like it's not not meant to be. It's just because studios don't put in the effort to put to put in the effort to film scores, honestly, yeah. uh, which we, we've talked about before in the first episode with that with the Batman. But. Right. I'm not sure where I went with that one, but I hope that made sense. No, it's true. I mean, like to, to what you're saying, um, it's not to say that it's ubiquitous that we only have con artists in the music industry who are trying to fall fly under the radar <laughs> and, and and steal as much as they can and make other people do most of the work. You know, that's not exclusive. It's not mm-hmm. not not all we have, but it, there is a lot of that. And honestly, there's always been a lot of that, just in different ways. Yeah. And one of the ways that it's possible now is we have a lot more composers working in the professional field who. You know, they 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 don't have any of this background. They, they like like James Horner did, where right. they have this encyclopedic knowledge of the classical literature. They they know how to orchestrate. You give them a, a piece of paper and a pencil, and they can they can write. You have a lot of people now who you know like they'll they'll you know come come out and be like, okay, so here's my thing. And it's like, and I don't know what the flutes are going to do. I don't know what the brass, but it's, it's that, you know, and then somebody else handles, you know, you know, all the, and they delegate. So there's a lot of that. And it, to me, that's less, you know, like people trying to fly under the radar because of, because music literacy is low and more just people trying to, you know, collect their paycheck without having to go to school. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was, I was, I was trying to think, I was thinking about this. So I just did a thing. It's probably out by the time this comes, this episode comes out. Um, where I talked about um, Star Trek 09 with a, with a with a, a podcaster um, 
on the on the show called the Narrative Labyrinth, and I, I had a really good time with that one. But we t- afterwards, I I was talking to them about this show about the real score, and um, we were talking about film scores, and and they were talking about how, you know, you could really like look at just how to look at the difference between Captain America: The First Avenger and Captain America: Civil War to see how film scores have changed. You could mm-hmm. literally just track it because one is done by Alan Silvestri and one is done by Henry Jackman. I think that's right. I think that's right. And like, no offense to Henry Jackman. I'm sure he's a fine guy, but like his score is not, he doesn't use any themes in, in civil war. And that's what, and that's what, that's what kind of film scores have become where it's, there's not really a through line theme anymore. It's just kind of like, Oh, we need some music for the romantic scene. Oh, we need some music for the action scene. Oh, we need it to be exciting. Oh, we need it to, you look at the subtitles and it's like, sweeping action music right and that's all it's kind of become uh whereas here there's like you hear a where we and not, i'm not just using the mask of zora as an example but just because we're talking about the mask of zora we'll hear you hear something that is uh, that is thought about to be the main motif of the movie that plays at certain times and certain things and it made me remember i'm just, i I'm kind of I'm kind of go, jumping around all over the place, but I have one more example I want to say, I want to speak up before I shut up for five minutes. Um, <laughs> and, um, so Star Trek Picard season three is on the air right now, and there's a lot of music in that in that show, and it's getting a lot of it's getting a lot of play and a lot of uh, attention, and rightfully so. And it's it's really good. It's really <clears throat> good. But I would argue that the reason why it's really good is because it's reusing motifs and themes that Jerry Goldsmith has created. I was just going to ask that question. How much um, of that is Goldsmith? And so, and so they have this this thing of like when Worf is on when Worf is on screen, dun, 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 the, the the Klingon theme that Goldsmith created. When the ship flies by, it's the it's the ship fly by from the motion picture. Uh, the the end credits are just the Star Trek theme from the Next Generation and First Contact. Like a lot of it is just Goldsmith and Horner, and it's and. And, and and other people like Alexander Courage and um, the, whoever Jeff whoever whoever composed um, the Voyager and Deep Space Nine theme. But like when the start when Voyager when the Starship Voyager is on screen, the Voyager theme plays, and that creates an emotional reaction to people because like oh I I have connected that theme to that ship, and I'm now hearing that theme when I see that ship, and that's how it should be. You know. Hey, wait a minute, Brandon. What how's the how's the Klingon theme go? Dun 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 dun. Now, the one I'm thinking of is, you know, the, the thing I'm thinking about, it's like, it's like, it's like the kind of a spooky kind of theme. It's no, in, I don't know this one. Jeez. I know it's in, I know it's in Wrath of Khan because I found it. I listened to it. I was like, ah, and the reason I know this is because it's also in Aliens. <laughs> well, I don't think there are Klingons in, in Wrath of Khan. Or not Wrath of Khan, the third one, the third one. Oh, Search Voyage Home. Spock. Search for Spock. Search for Spock. Wrath of Continent. That's Search what Chris, for Spock. Christopher Lloyd and Blackface, everybody. Ah, no. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Right. But anyway, so sorry. Sorry. My mistake. You're So you're right. Um, whatever was in... Anyway, so the, the third one has the, has the, the, the Klingons and it has the, the, the same thing that's in Aliens. But uh, So, okay. No, just, I, I heard you th- hum that and I was like, wait a minute. That's not what I'm, th- I'm thinking of. So I just think it's... I just think it's... It, it, I think it's it's nice that when we get a composer, it's it's really it's really it's really nice to nowadays people. I, I think there's a kind of a superficial thing happening nowadays when people are like, oh, people just want to hear a theme. 
So we'll just play that theme that they're familiar with and not really do anything meaningful with it. And sure. I don't know. That's, a, that's this probably becomes fan service. Right. Yeah, that's probably more of what I'm trying to get at no, than I anything else. But I, I think that's an excellent and very true point is that like, oh, yeah. And then obviously you play the theme here and then that's all the thought is. It's like just t- take the theme and put it here as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rather than like, do we change the theme? Does the theme sound different? Which, again, a great example here in Mask of Zorro because that theme is everywhere, but that theme yes. is not always the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> on the release score album... Um, there's yeah. a track that's labeled Zorro's theme yeah. um, and it features what I would say is the most romantic version of the theme in the film. Um, when I was rewatching it and before looking at the track titles, I personally was thinking of this piece as Elena and Zorro's theme. And I do mean that both as this romantic version that's using Zorro to stand in for either the love between Elena and Alejandro or from Diego towards his daughter. <clears throat> and you're talking about the, <clears throat> it's the most common one. Yeah. Uh, that, right. That, yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, and this okay. is the version. This is the. It's the same theme. It's the same melody. But it's when it's played on the strings, and it's and it's very. Uh, it's it's very. You know, the the capital R romantic sweeping sound of it. And you're and 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 I think what you were saying to to touch on a little deeper the how it's used in multiple contexts to talk most both about Elena and Alejandro's love, but also Anthony Hopkins, Diego 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 and Elena's love right the multiple contexts of love yeah. there because whenever he's talking about Elena it, it's using that theme and whenever Alejandro and Elena it's using that theme right. Um, yes. so it's, it's interesting. I actually wanted to talk about the use of that theme in relation ch- into, uh, um, Elena, because I had a thought while watching the movie, first of all, that Elena fails the, the, the Bechdel test, uh, <laughs> horribly. And then I thought about how that theme is used in multiple contexts of love for her. And I realized that actually, because she's kind of objectified in the film, as, you know, being either, you know, a, an object of love or a, an object of, you know, like passion parental and revenge and, and yeah, parental love. But, you know, like she is a she's a sort of like goal for both characters in some way, but she doesn't really have much going on herself. So right. that theme kind of fails to attach to her specifically. It right. attaches to the, these two characters drive for her, which makes it kind of limited in the way that it was able to be used. Hmm. Like I kind of found that it was like, it, it was kind of a one note theme. I mean, it's more than one note, but like it, like, like it didn't have that much. Like there was a few, there was a few instances where I, where I heard it in, in different contexts for sure. But like, it didn't really have much of a chance to explore that, you know, at least not the romance of it, not the, not the character depth of it. Um, the one that I think got used more was the,
right? That that mm. kind of more like adventure theme got a lot right. more use. Which I mean, that's that's a that's a really great metaphor for this movie. Is it's it's more of an adventure than it is a right. character study. Sure. Which again, like which again, like that's why I'm kind of surprised that it's the very romantic version that's labeled as Zorro's theme, mm-hmm. the version I would more associate towards Elena, mm-hmm. and not that adventurous version. Which again, yeah. same melody, you're hitting the same things, mm-hmm. you're just doing it differently. Same chords too, you know. Yeah, yeah. Versus. It's exactly the same theme. You could say it's an A and a B to the same theme, right? It is. It is. Like, he's he's taking the same theme and he's finding different ways to use it for different things. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I'm like you, Jeremy. I would argue that when I think of the theme as uh, that would be Zorro's theme, I would think of the adventure one uh, yeah, more yeah. as, mm-hmm. like, Zorro's theme. Sure. The version that they've labeled Zorro's theme on the on the track, I think of more as the association usually with <clears throat> Lena. Isn't um, that in which there, is though? the more like sweeping and and uh, uh, romantic sounding one? Isn't it's the, gentler. Isn't the adventure one in Zorro's theme too? Or am, I, am I mistaken? I think it is uh, very near the end. I'd have to listen to the track again. Well, could it could it be? I'm just speculating because like I, no. no way would I know. But like, could it be because Zorro is considered a romantic hero, not a uh, Zoro's considered a romantic hero, not an adventure hero. I mean, I'm not saying that's wrong. What I'm saying is, um, <clears throat> I, you know what that... I would say, <laughs> sorry to cut you off, but what no, I would say ahead. is that, um, contextually as a Spanish hero, that big sweeping romance sound is going to hit a little bit harder than like an adventure theme. Right. right because right. the melodrama of it, right. It's, it's the, Zorro, you know, like it, yeah. that's what it's supposed to feel like. Right. right? See, like, I, I don't disagree with the, I, I guess this is the thing is I don't disagree with the track labeling it as the theme, because I would mm-hmm. argue that like what it's playing there, that is the mask of Zorro theme. That yes. is the theme of this movie. Mm-hmm. I just wouldn't have called it Zorro's theme. I don't mm-hmm. think it's the theme of him as a character in this movie. Sure. Uh, yeah. No, I, do I, think it's, I, I do think it's the theme of the film. Uh, yeah. yeah, for sure. I'll, I'll, I, I would say that 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 sort of like um, discourse there is more related to how effectively the character of Zorro was even portrayed because he's, you know, let's let's talk about the character of Zorro in this film, like Alejandro, right? Not not Diego, but Alejandro, Um, you know, he's very charming. Which is funny because initially he's like, I could never be charming. <laughs> it's like, you learn magic and you know how to dance. Like, what are you talking about, man? But like, Oh my God, that magic trick is so sexy. Just the, <laughs> on the rose. When he learned that. Who knows? When he knows how to do that. Anyway, so, so like the character in the movie, um, I don't know if it, it resembles that, that, um, <laughs> I don't, I don't know if he embodies that, like his character. Diego's character does. Mm-hmm. He's a lot more 
a lot more sentimental, a lot more debonair. Yeah. I, I would argue that Alejandro does. I don't know if his version of Zorro ever has enough opportunity to be something different to say that he does or not. It, I just think this the, is not this is not a film like the Batman where yeah. there, there's a separation of like who is Bruce Wayne, who is Batman. No. And well, that's what I mean, is that it, 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 it doesn't really have a chance to go deep enough in the film to, to for us to really, you know, dig into like, how does this represent? Zorro? Can I but, can real quickly just yes. be like, so in the beginning of this movie, when, you know, it's it's Anthony Hopkins as Zorro and he's doing he's doing the swashbuckling thing is ah, 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 and he's uh, and he's and he's whipping across the veranda and um, and afterwards. When and so for like years when I was a kid, I was like, how did Montero know that Diego de la Vega was Zorro? And I and I saw and watching it this time, I was like, oh, the fool grew facial hair. You were an idiot. <laughs> like <laughs> that because like who wouldn't look at that face and be like, with that close and see how he says Raphael? Because like he's not Zorro's not Batman. Right? I, I know I know how like, he knew. He's like, hey, who is this Welshman? Who's this who's this Welsh guy <laughs> hanging out in the Welsh guy? <laughs> And so, but like, so like the idea yes, of like, because, because Montero is also, <laughs> oh no, I know he's Catherine Zeta Jones is Welsh too. Here's the thing. Um, here's the thing. Like, you know, real quick, because we brought it up. Should they have been, should Anthony Hopkins, a Welsh actor have played him? Probably not. But the problem, but the problem is not color skin, right? Because this is where people get really sticky about this. And I think it's, it's important to point out that when people debate like oh it's a whitewashed role and i'm like well it's a welsh wash role and that's true but it's not necessarily a whitewash role because spaniards can have lighter skin tones. sure yeah probably yeah, yeah, yeah. did especially at that point in time um they are not supposed to look like the hispanic and, and mexican characters that are living in mexico they're mm-hmm. not supposed to look the same right um so i don't think that the problem is skin color at least which is a debate i only bring that up because that's a debate that people get locked into very easily and i'm like that's not really the problem the problem is that he's he's very very welsh right Um, sir anthony hopkins plays but but here's the thing here's the thing better than sean connery um because that's who it was originally gonna be what yes oh my goodness oh Oh my goodness oh my goodness i'm going oh my goodness that's such a good reference to highlander where sean connery played a spanish man that that feels like the only reason they're doing it, and I'm really glad they didn't do it. I mean, but like, there's the there's you know there's a long history, unfortunate history of Zorro being played by a white guy. Sure. Um, it's a and, historically accurate film, then. Yeah, it's, no, for real. Um, well, well, like, and it's it it's it's to the value of the film, right? That like at least Diego is acknowledged as Spaniard, right? Yeah. And Alejandro is yes. Mexican. Yeah, no, they I know, I know exactly their, what you're saying. In the right? senses of background and, and things like that. You're it's supposed to feel the separation between the, the, the colonists and the and the, the like indigenous. Right, like, it's important. That's what it's you're supposed important. to feel. It's important that Diego was a member of his class. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. was betraying them. Um, no, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. And and so but, but to get back to what I was trying to say it was like the, the and it's inconsequential to the to this to this thing. I just think it's an interesting thought of like you know, Zorro is often cited as an as an influence for Batman. Um, there many many Batman origin stories has him coming out of the Mark of Zorro, sure. um, and 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 so like you have this this. But the interesting thing about Zorro is that he's not Diego de la Vega isn't hiding in Zorro. He he is because that's just kind of how film was made and the serials were made in the forties. Um, and beca- like you, it was easy to, it was easy to just be like, yeah, no, they don't really care. But like in this movie, I, I just, I found it so interesting watching this and thinking to myself, like 
Montero probably figured it out a long time ago and was just like waiting to get him and just decided, you know what? F it. I'm going to his house. We're done. I'm done with this mother effer. I, I, if I were to extrapolate, we're getting a little away from the score, but if I were to extrapolate in this film how Montero knew, it's because Diego had never gotten that close before. Yeah, probably. Um, you know, this is the first time he's ever marked him, all that kind of stuff. And yes, and then he figures it out because, like, he knows Diego yeah. personally. Um, he's a Don, so good he movie. Knows him. I like this movie a lot. <laughs> no, it's a great movie. Um, let's let's. So we're talking about the opening. Let's go. Let's backtrack just a little bit. So the score. Um, I, I made a note where I wanted to say that the score is always in motion. Um, mm-hmm. in one form or another, I think the score is always moving, and I think the film wisely does not force the score into moments where it does not need to be. It was something that really stood out to me on the rewatch when I was taking notes is that there's actually a lot of moments where there's no score. Mm. Um, and I think that's to the film's benefit and credit that it's not just trying to shove in score where it's not needed. There's a lot of quiet moments where it's just focusing on what the characters are saying to each other. It makes the score when it does come back all the more distinguished and, and strong. And one of the reasons that's so effective in long form symphonic development in a movie, right? as opposed to just like a symphony, but like in a film, um, is that because there's less music, right? There's a single theme we've talked about, right? One theme and then like a a couple like smaller ideas. But because there's only that, when the music comes back, you're immediately like, I remember this, I remember where we were, you know, like it's like like a bookmark for you. To, to come back to because there it's not like here's a new piece now and here's a new you know that, that's what a lot of like modern films are it's just like every every track is just a new set of drums <laughs> it's a whole new thing and you know and like i said we get too much music and not enough at the same time in a lot of modern movies this movie's great at giving us appropriate um you know threaded underscore when when needed and then backing away silently so that there's room to breathe, and then when it comes back, it's it, there's the there's the adventure theme or there's the love theme. It's one of the two. It allows you to focus on either of those two themes more because of the repetition. You just keep hearing, you know, I guess one theme, right? But two versions of that theme. Sure. You get to hear that over and over again, and it starts to dig into your brain. And even when you're not musically minded, if you're not musically literate you'll start picking it up like, oh, there's that love theme again. I know that. I've heard that a couple times now. I'm not right. stupid, right? right? So it's really effective. That's, and that's part of the, 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 the benefit of, of, of adding silence to the movie because if you, if you saturate, if you just keep, people get to get bored of that theme. They're, they're not going to pay attention to it. Yeah. It's correct me if I'm wrong, but the moment where Bernardo, Diego, and... Um, uh, uh, Elena are talking, are, are grooming Tornado. There's no music in that scene, right? No. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting watching watching that because, like, you could have easily because we talked about how how the the love theme is also used for Diego and uh, Elena when 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 Diego is talking to Elena, talking about Elena. Um, and you have and you could have easily put that under that scene. <laughs> uh, it's because uh, originally. Um, Tornado's theme was going to be there, but Tornado's lawyer got involved at the time. And anyway, <laughs> I had to just cut it out. You know? Audio <laughs> listeners cannot see the eye roll I just did. Oh, me neither, because I was on a different page of, on my tabs. So I, I dodged that one. Um, anyway, like, and so like you could have easily, very easily, but like 
one of the things that we that that I think is going to come up on the show a lot is that you know when we, when you're talking about score, yes, we're talking about music, but we're also kind of talking about the absence of music because that's just as important. Um, we talked about that with the Batman, and we're talking about it now with the Mask of Zorro because you know the absence of the theme is also import is is also a theme almost it's also yes. kind of its own its own statement within the soundtrack of to be like you know in this moment when elena and diego are talking to each other you don't need the love theme right now you just need to listen to them you need to be yeah. in this moment with them right I, I think horner rightly makes a decision that is the music is bringing in that theme in this moment supporting anything that's being said between the characters and the or is it distracting and the answer was kind of no it's it's really not um so i i do think that that was the correct uh, i'm gonna <clears throat> if you're looking at our doc i'm gonna jump ahead just a little bit um so so still focusing on just the theme what's called mm -hmm. zoro's theme but like what is the theme of this movie the mask of zoro theme um uh i think that this theme is great um I think it's incredible. I think the fact that we can break it down into all the varied uses um, and it still so remains just so true to the heart of the film uh, is awesome. It's not cynical. Like we talked about earlier, this is a very earnest, very sincere romantic adventure film. Again, capital R romantic in the vein of Errol Flynn classics. And I think Horner made a score and a theme specifically that really represents that. I think that this movie works as well as it does because of two factors uh, in this score, which is the theme, but also the inclusion of non-traditional, non-conventional instruments for it, um, which, again, we'll get into it a little more specifically <clears throat> later, but it's the flamenco dancers, it's the castanets, it's the, it's the trumpets, it's the feet stamping, it's all of that is um, is something that drives it away from uh, just being a bland score supporting this this film. And I think it it part of the reason why The Mask of Zorro holds up so well and I enjoy watching it so much is the music with it. What do you think the significance of the Shakuhachi is there? <clears throat> in which it, part? Well, just in, in the film. Like, I mean, I, I, yeah, I get, I like, I get castanets, I get, you know, flamenco guitar, I get the, the trumpet. You know, like, honestly, I think, he <laughs> just, I think he just likes it. And the reason I say that yeah. is because, like, it's, it doesn't have one use. He uses it like stand out to me like i was like oh so it's for like the bad guys and i'm like no it's not just for the bad guys because he also uses it to make you feel bad about um seeing the the kid uh, in the mine yeah uh, being forced to labor and yeah. he also uses it early in the beginning at the plaza of execution when zoro's going up the steps mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. for his oh first, like, that's what yeah, yeah, thrust that's into the, the sky yeah that's that, kind of that kind of like long note that like starts the, a the like, hawk screech yeah yeah the hawk screech yeah yeah, yeah. That's the that's the Japanese flute, the shakuhachi, and so he never he he uses it so sporadically throughout the film. It's never like locked into one meaning. It always um, kind of comes in as like an alarm, like an alert, like a boing, you know, like it's meant to meant to perk you up for whatever. Whatever's yeah, happening. I guess I guess that's true. Is like it, it almost feels like something that's meant to pull your attention to like this is a big moment or this is an important thing because you've got like uh, the the stabbing of. Um, not stabbing, but like the the appearance of Captain Love mm -hmm, when mm -hmm. he shows up at the the end. Yeah, you've got um, again like it's really trying to they try to drive home. There's a specific shot I can picture it in my head so easily. The kid like climbing up the ladder mm -hmm. that Alejandro's looking at when they're at the mine and doing the labor, and they they play that shakuhachi right over it because they really want you to get like this is sad. 
Um, <laughs> and and I think you're probably right, Jeremy, that it's mostly like a, hey, wake up, pay attention. This is important. Um, I was just I was just wondering if there was maybe like a historical reason, but like I'm trying like. 1800s Japan probably has nothing to do with 1800s Mexico. He just really likes that darn flute. He Uh, really does. I think that's all it really comes down to is he just really likes that darn flute. Especially, man, especially in like the 90s. He Mm. was all over like, I don't want to use the word exotic, but I guess whatever. Exotic woodwinds like that is like his whole thing. Right. So non-conventional, non-conventional in Western film. And he thought that was great. Yeah. Um, yeah. It is weird to have all this Latin flavor and then a Japanese flute just kind of mixed in. Um, it, it really stands out. And I, I mean, that's the thing where I think, you know, where I'm looking for the, the purpose and intention. It's like, well, it really stands out. And why I thought maybe it's an alarm, you know, I'll in say, some way. I'll say this. I'll say this about it. Um, I like it in this movie, but I like it in this movie because to my memory, it's the first time I can remember hearing the Shakahachi in uh-huh. the score. And so my my immediate like go-to association, like usually when I think of that sound, is Captain Love. It's also the same I think of this movie when I think of the Four Notes of Death um, motif that, that Horner likes to use. This is the film I gravitate to first. I think of Captain Love. Um, <clears throat> but if I, as an adult, going back to it and thinking about film score... I don't think the Shakahachi should be in the score. Um, like, like <laughs> I'm if, I'm being, if I'm being more sincere and objective about it, I'm like, it's a very distracting, not of the same um, color palette, non-conventional yeah. palette of uh, instruments that we're using in so many other places in this film that I, I would be like, this is a very much a Horner stamp in a way where like, I don't think it belongs in this movie. Um, I, I found it distracting. Gotten, <laughs> I think you could have gotten a similar effect by using one of the more Latin flavored instruments in those moments to do something else. Like um, mariachi trumpet. <laughs> That's what I would What it sounds like to me, it sounds like to me like like he got a new toy and he just I don't put it in. But it's not new. He used it in Jumanji, he, too. Right. Yeah. It's not new to him, but he. Yeah, but that's what really it's, that's what it, it sounds like. You know, I've I've had my share of of new toy syndrome where like you start you start working on a piece and you got like a three minute piece and you're like, OK, how many times can I use the new, that, that button now? You know, how many times can I put it? and it just feels like in almost every track, it's somewhere, you know, it's uh, at some at some peak where where the where the sound dips underneath it. You know, it's like, Bwing! you know, like and it just it comes in so often. I was like, I was trying to I was trying to find a, a justification for it. It was just. So, but it, it, you know, I just think it's a hornerism. He just he just loves those those world and eastern flutes. He just, he he loves the shit out of them. Right? Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it very much is like I love it anyway because I loved it since I was a kid. Oh sure, so no, I love the, the sound. sound. I love the score and all that kind of stuff. But like being critical about it, it's like yeah, probably shouldn't be here. It probably shouldn't <laughs> be in this movie. Um, it's a 90ism that you can get away with that and have nobody call you on it at all. Right, right, right. Um, uh, uh, so real quick, um, uh, I think that this theme, going back to just talking about the theme of the film, I think it works every moment from beginning to end whenever he uses it. I think it's always working for the film. Um, I especially love when it comes full circle with Alejandro and his home with the child for the last shot of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, we'll yeah. kind of get back to that a little later. I have a whole note that's, that's further down. Um, uh, Horner gave an opinion about this. I just wanted to make a note of this around the time of release for The Legend of Zorro. And he said that he's always felt the film was about Elena. And so all roads of the huh. music for Alejandro and Diego were always supposed to bridge back to her. So I, I think that kind of goes back to like what we were saying earlier. Um, 
that whether or not the execution of that is quite as clear. I think that maybe it actually has more to do with the script than it does necessarily with the score. It sounds like um, you didn't watch the movie, but I, but, but I can hear that in the score, right? Making right. that, making that, making that Zorro's theme. Okay. I see where Horner's coming from with that. Right. right. In this, this movie's about Elena. Right. I didn't, I didn't get that from the movie. <laughs> no. um, well, in, in a sense of like, in a sense, he's not necessarily wrong because the film is about getting Elena. Well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the problem. <laughs> no, I know. I, I know. I, I know. From a musical standpoint, I think he I think he probably picked up on Elena's importance in, in, yeah. in the script. And oh, yeah. Uh, and and compo- and composed around that, whereas the, the script still, you know, Terry, Terry Rossio and and who who's the other guy? Uh, there's three. Let me go back up. I know, but there's um, specifically one other guy that I want to bring John, up. John Eskow and Ted Elliott. Tell you, uh, Terry Rossio and Ted Elliott are still a while away from Will and Elizabeth. Like, they're not... They they wrote Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, like, That's so, where I that knew that name. so much sense. Uh, right. I knew I knew that name. So they're still a couple years out from, 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 from Will and Elizabeth, so they still... They haven't quite figured out how to make woman work. <laughs> Elizabeth definitely feels like a man's apology for writing women characters one way. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think, like, again, you know... This isn't necessarily an excuse. I think, you know, at this point in time, we do better. But this was 25 years ago. And I think 25 years ago, this film is intended as a send up of classical film and classical film treats these female characters just the same way. Like this is trying to capture the spirit of old Zorro films, of old swashbuckling romantic films. And and it's creating Elena, crafting Elena to be the same thing. I think it's actually refreshing that at at least what the script does, I think it's very smart, is that Elena is not just a goalpost for Alejandro. In fact, she's a secondary goalpost if anything for him because his primary is captain love yeah. diego's <clears throat> goalpost is elena because that's his daughter and i don't think that's as common of these classical films that it's uh homaging and so i think that they did a very smart thing by making her relation to diego kind of foundational and the main uh dynamic relationship that you care about as far as Elena's concerned and then alejandro and elena is like yeah that's their it's it's the important like love story of the film but it's secondary and one of the things I want to bring up about Elena real quickly before we before we kind of move off on that, just to kind of, I, I, maybe I'm giving too much credit here, but like Elena is, Elena figures out Montero's not her dad before Diego, before Diego even says anything. Like he, like she, she has an inkling. It's just Diego kind of puts the last piece together and she throughout the film has figured it out. Like, wait a second. I don't, I don't think Montero's my dad. But she doesn't want to. She doesn't doesn't want to accept that truth because it's been twenty years. So I just figured a way to ruin the, the movie altogether. Um, so Alejandro is like an orphan, right? And like Diego's kind of like his surrogate father, you know, kind of takes there. him in. And so like at the end, when Diego's dying, having like Alejandro be like, "Thank you." dad and then and then like he dies and then he looks to elena and it's like mm, i shouldn't have said that <laughs> i don't see it i don't see it as a as a father-son relationship honestly ah yeah i don't know it's just that you could ruin it does that it way. does feel more teacher student than it feels father-son well maybe maybe <laughs> maybe okay. you're not wrong <laughs> All right, let's talk about let's talk about the opening. I think the opening's incredible. I think the opening is um, 
honestly could be like a, a you could argue it's a proof of concept almost for the sure. film. You could you could see it as its own short, uh, essentially. Um, oh, yeah. This is on the album The Plaza of Execution. That's what it's titled. Um, mm-hmm. Let's let's talk about that. So uh, first, the opening of the film, you have this incredible striking guitar sound with Zorro walking out. Kind of a James Bond-esque thing, which you have to imagine that Campbell was bringing over from Goldeneye, which he made just before this. Um so I think that that's that's very much a send up of that the, the oh, visualization sure. idea of Zorro doing that, um, and then it's followed up by this text introduction, and <clears throat> that comes with the Spanish flamenco dancers coming in, yeah. and that text introduction is really really interesting because like I, it's just not how you would expect the movie to start, but I think the decision to put the the flamenco dancers under it keeps it from like dying from the energy of what Zorro does Mm -hmm. uh, in the opening with flashing the Z and then you get all this writing, but like the flamenco dancers are building the like tension up so that the film then opens up on the, on the boys in the, in the um, carriage. promise of the, the swashbuckling to come yeah. it's like it's like this this is the sound of the revolution that we're describing you know like mm-hmm. the, the, the the footwork of sword play yeah yeah mm-hmm. i think one of the things because you brought up the the flamenco dancers right i said that right flamenco yes. dancers yeah. um the what, Flam- what flamingo brandon it's flamingo no, don't do that don't listen to jeremy <laughs> <laughs> i'm not saying the word ever again um so <laughs> um Throughout this, because you've mentioned the sword fighting has a lot of that in the background. And um, I think that was an incredibly smart choice. And it's not really something you see often that treating treating these sword fights like they're a dance. And and when Alejandro is teaching Diego a little later in the movie, it, it is like he's teaching he's teaching Alejandro how to dance. So like, oh, yeah. OK, yes. now you you move like this and you mm-hmm. move like this and then you, you parry the, 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 the triangle. Slow again. Slow, let's try and slow, like good, good, that is good. Thank you. Attack. I, I just think that's such a such a really cool choice to 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 do that, um, and it creates such an interesting energy to the to the to the fight sequences, one that you didn't you didn't really see back then. Right. Well, it's funny too because I I, I, I took fencing for three maybe four years and um one thing that happens a lot when people start talking about fencing is they they often um relate it to dance right a lot of people are like oh fencing is like a dance you know and i think it's really prominent in this movie the way that like the flamenco uh pairs with it and like what it's you know how it's it's connecting those dots and even that climactic dance scene in the middle of the the film right there's there's dancing and sword play and they're all intertwined in this um, and uh, fencers hate that. They just absolutely hate being compared to dance all, all together. <laughs> <laughs> Real quickly, no, <laughs> you brought up the you brought up the tango scene. That's the best sex scene in the movie. We'll we'll talk about it in a, a little later. But um, it, it's it's very much this film is not trying to create like realistic sword fights, right? It's creating sure. swashbuckling 
love to watch it at the movies, sword fights that do feel like dance, that that do feel like the Spanish flamenco dancers. They are providing this this uh, energy and this flavor to it that makes it so absolutely appealing to watch. It is the visuals, but it's also the score. Um, yeah, we're getting a little bit ahead of in, in the notes there, but like that that that's very true. Um, <clears throat> that the way that all, almost all of the duels are crafted. Mm-hmm. to work with that flamenco dancing looks just so fun. It's yeah. it's just such a thrill to to watch them. Um, I did want to go through all of the plots of execution real quick because I do think it, you kind of get like the microcosm of the film examples, what we're talking about with the theme all happen here. Oh, yeah. Um, well, it's almost up. like an overture. <clears throat> right. Yes. So true. It's, it's not an overture, but it, it, it functions that way. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, especially when you listen to it on the album rather than watching it with the film, watching yes. it with the film, there are pauses and, and spaces, which I kind of forgot about some of them because I've listened to the score more recently than I rewatched mm-hmm. this movie <clears throat> before I did it. Yeah. Um, but you get <clears throat> you get the part where you come out wide into the plaza and you get um, Horner's choice of instruments that's really pushing the Spanish influence with the choice of the, the horns and the clapping castanets and everything. And that's when you get the first like version of the main theme, but it's in a style that, that I think would later be the adventure theme. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the it's the more adventurous, the like it's moving faster, it's it's moving a little brisker. The choice of instruments mm-hmm. makes it that that version. Um and I think a lot of the power in this score comes down to Horner's selection of instruments, when to feature what and what speed to go at and all that kind of stuff. It's what makes that theme move so well through the rest of the film. Um, and specifically but, that little bit that I... That thing? Like, you couldn't get more Spanish-flavored than that rhythmic intonation. Right. And because it's baked right into the loaf of the theme, as, like, actually, there's two notes, right? Or, I guess, four notes... And then the other four notes are that. So like half of that theme, because that's really the whole theme. I mean, you can go on and, and, and branch off into other stuff. But like that's the that's the core of the theme, the, the leitmotif that gets used over and over again. And so whenever that little da 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 I mean, like, like, like you can imagine that as any, you know, like song that you might hear in a Spanish context because it's it's very like culturally prominent within there. So you know, good on him <laughs> because you actually don't even need the castanets at that point. Right. You could say that with strings and it, it, it's going to have that same flavor. So it, it's cool because then the castanets and the, you know, all these things, they, they become more, um, more world building than like, <clears throat> like an orchestration choice for, you know, emotion context. You know, it, it's like, it's like we are in like the 1820s right now, 1820s, you know, um, Spanish occupied California. That's, that's where we are because of these instruments. And then like the theme itself is just saying everything that needs to be said about like who these characters are. So <laughs> didn't need to say any of that really. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree. I think you're, you're very correct. Um, so when we, when we get from there, we go to the more romantic version of the theme comes up when Diego is spotted in the crowd by, by the boy, um, mm-hmm. he's. It's quickly followed by the shakahachi. I saw sorrow. Come on. Attention! When it shows the firing squad, um, <laughs> just to point that out. But but yeah, so you get the you get the adventure version. The romantic version. 
And then when Zoro comes out to challenge the firing squad, then you hear the action version. So the theme. Do we also get the at any point during the the plaza of executions that happen? Uh, I can't remember if I heard it that early. I think so when he confronts Montero. Because if that uh, happens, Montero. if that happens in this in, in that scene and there's only one other there's only one other thing that we haven't even talked about yet. This thing, the you know what? You know the thing I'm talking about? No, uh, mm. it's in. Oh, God, it's in the mine um, and oh, about sure. at about 25 seconds. Oh, OK, OK, but it's it, I think it's in this key. I think it goes uh, like the like this. Uh, Uh-huh. You know, and then, it, and then it drops down. I forgot what key. Um, also in Jumanji, funny enough, um, <laughs> that same thing. But I was going to ask, if that's in there too, then boy, this scene really would function like an overture. I mean, you wouldn't even need that last bit if it has all, all those other ones in there. Because it got every theme in there. It's got every theme in, 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 in that scene. Almost, almost. Uh, it, it, we'll get into that, but almost. Sure. Um, so, uh, yes, you get the you get the action version and the, the, the whole sequence at the plaza tops off with this big, big bombastic triumphant adventure version as Zoro goes up the stairs, does does the shove, mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. you know, uh, all that. Um, and uh, then we get to the end of it where Diego gets home um, and it's it's kind of tapering off into the romantic thing before it transitions into something else. which we'll get into later. That's not part of this, the main theme, but it is the, uh, what is associated with Elena and Esperanza. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that. Mm. Um, I, I say all that just to accentuate what an incredible opening it is and oh, yeah. how much Horner is doing with the theme right out of the gate, like creating all these different paths for the theme to take. That, I think that that scene is my favorite part of the movie. I, could, I think I could watch that over and over again. It's, it's so fun. Yeah. And I love, you know, just like the energy of like the, 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 the two boys, you know, meeting Zorro and he gives them the necklace and stuff. And it's just, it so embodies what uh, like a romantic adventure film should feel like, you know, like it's the same thing is like you know, we, we talk about all the time. Sam, um, the the ending of Raimi's Spider-Man movie, you know, with the where it, it focuses on the people of New York and that that feeling of the, the hero, uh, you know, citizen relationship and how right. and how they are affected. Right. Or even in Amazing Spider-Man, uh, you know, when when Paul Giamatti and the rhino thing and the, and the kids standing up to him, you know, like there's that element that is missing in so many hero stories right. where it gets so focused on the hero that it forgets to be like, look at how it's affecting them. And of course, he grows up to be um, uh, uh, what's what's his name? Um Antonio Banderas. He grows up to be Antonio Banderas. And, you know, look at what a great career he's had. So meeting Zora had a great impact on him. <laughs> I, I, I do think, like, that's one of the, the strong points of the film, for sure, is just... Um, and it allows, I think, for these themes to stand out so much, is the choice that, at the beginning of the film, all of Me- all of California occupied, you know, the, these Mexicans, they're on the side of Zorro. 
Zoro mm-hmm. is their champion. He is right. the people's champion. Yes. And so it allows for that theme to exist because at this point in time, it's very clear, like, they are all against Montero and it, and they are with Zoro. Zoro is someone who they support. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think you're very correct. Um, let's go on to, I, I, I'm still keeping like very focused on the, the way that we're structuring the episodes, like yeah. talking about all the uses of the main theme of the film yeah, and, and yeah, yeah. where that comes in. So let's talk about training. Um, Brandon brought this up earlier, the uh-huh. kind of teaching of the fencing lesson. Um, initially I was about to say like, because like in my memory of, of listening to the scores released album, um, that the, I was sad that the training wasn't in there, but it is, it's snuck into the beginning of the fencing lesson track. Uh, so the first like minute and so seconds of the fencing <laughs> lesson is actually the training. Um, and uh, I, I love this section of music. I, I think it's got an incredible use of the theme being very slowed down, broken up with a lot of the clapping of the castanets, the trumpets, and then the guitar for the training of Alejandro. It's got this very nice slow build that's like moving with the swords as you brought up, Brandon. Um, uh, uh, just another great different use of the theme. Oh, and I mean, it's, so, it's such a film. simple, it's such a simple thing, but like the, as the sword fighting gets, the, the, the you know, the dun, 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 like the sword, it's, it's much, it's much slower. And then as the sword fighting gets faster, it starts to speed up. And so yes. as, as, um, as Alejandro is learning, the music gets quicker because his, his reflexes are getting quicker. He's, he's learning to be Zorro. It's kind of like, it's kind of like the training is, 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 tra- is training the audience almost to, to kind of be like, he's not Zoro at the beginning of the score, but at the end of it. Oh, sure. Well, that's a montage, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, not- but like, but that's what, but I think that like, I think what this does better than other montage scores. <clears throat> yeah. It's a lot more structured within the yes. piece. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. And not, not to derail this, but this is just a, t- a tiny little note because I, 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 I spent too much of this episode bashing Horner. And I, I think it's, it's worth noting that this is kind of interesting. Um, and this is such a deep cut, but whatever, fuck it. Um, I don't know how many of our listeners have played Final Fantasy IX, but in the beginning of that game, there is this, like, faux sword fight that you have to do while you're on stage and trying to steal the princess, right? And I am convinced that the composer... I guess that's Nobu Uematsu. I bet he was directly influenced from this movie because that game came out like a year later. And it is the same thing. It's like the flamenco dancers during the during during the sword fight and the you know the trumpets going and it's it's got that same Spanish flavor. And it's like, okay, cool. James Horner got got Nobu Uematsu into that same sound. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know that for sure, but like whenever I think of this song this track the, the the training sequence the fencing lessons i immediately go right back to that final fantasy 9 scene and it's like that's the same thing it's the exact same idea just done differently it is it is um i think just because of like roll the this, clip sam this might be i probably <laughs> will yeah. might be the most um isolated uh moment in the score for just hearing flamenco dancers yeah castanets and the guitar um and because it is the most isolated they stand out very clearly here Mm -hmm. it is certainly the moment when i was watching it where i'm like gotta gotta talk about how good those flamenco dancers are man they really make this film um this is the moment where you're supposed to connect the sword play and the flamenco dancing this Mm -hmm. is the, the point where the audience goes oh that's what that thing in the intro was subconsciously right 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 and i also really love um he does this really weird but i kind of love it this <laughs> this slow bass sound yeah um, in the, in the intro the, yeah it's this little dum, 
<laughs> Before any of the flamenco dancers or anything come in, and I'm like, what a weird but kind of cool choice. Well, because what it's doing, right? It's setting up that, um, the... That's the bass line, right? And funny enough, the notes in that, that's no, the first one, right? It's the same. Right. <laughs> it's, the same it's the same chords so, as the so whole what, movie. <laughs> so, what you were just, so what you were just playing there is like, it's not technically part of the main Mask of Zorro theme. It's definitely living in like the same space as it, but it actually would like, it doesn't belong to any specific place, but if you wanted to make an argument, it's Diego de la Vega's theme. It's, pretty isolated to only instances involving him mm -hmm. which this is one you know um, what i would say on that because that's a great point is that diego's old yeah right he doesn't have much fight left in him the only thing left is the bass notes <laughs> it's, so, the, so, it's the chord progression and nothing else <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we're, we're going to talk about like that that specific part of it and then how it kind of blends in a little mm -hmm. later but like what what you're playing is you're correct like with the bass they're doing what is that it's that part um, which is more associated with Diego uh, in in the bass there. So let's transition to uh, an incredible use of the theme. And, and what I'm, I'm going to say this a couple of times, but it's, it's a really great sequence in the film. Um, Tornado in the Barracks. Uh, that's yeah. what it's titled on the, on the album. Um, uh, I, think, I think this is the scene where if people were like not completely swept up in the film, they were by this scene. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, it's very, very good. Um, you get the mix of fun and action with the use of trumpets and castanet, and it brings back in that action side of the theme. It's not, it's not really the adventure sound, it's not really the romantic sound, it's the, the, the more action speed and sound. I think this is the scene is just a, a blast of great adventure filmmaking and just what you see <laughs> visually and Horner is reflecting blast. it very clearly yeah. uh, in the action of the on screen um, what's going on on screen with his music uh, he's moving in synchronicity with Alejandro as he maneuvers around the space but he's not like Mickey Mousing him he's just <laughs> making it all work. Never heard that term. <laughs> You've never heard Mickey Mousing? 
No. Oh what my does that gosh. Mean? Uh, so I got taught that I I got taught that in my film score class in college. So Mickey Mousing is um it's basically the term for basically doing the cartoon stuff, um, classic cartoon stuff with the score. So pretty much every action that the character is doing is oh. in the score. It's the oh, Mickey the, Mousing them through. Yeah. The, right. And so no, so like it's there with the cannonballs, right? The brilliant use yeah. of matching the cannonballs. But I don't think I wouldn't call that necessarily Mickey Mousing as much as they're trying to like make the sound of the cannonballs really affect. What I mean is when Holly Alejandro, there is another sequence in here where Horner is Mickey Mousing and we'll talk about it. But um, Alejandro is is moving around the space, but it's like the music is moving with him, but it's not like every action is is, you know, hitting the stings of what he's doing. He's not That's hitting a, all the hits to Mickey Mouse him. He's just moving with him. That's a that's a that's a silent film uh, holdover, right? Yes. A bit back when films didn't have didn't have um, sound, sound they, they would have a, a, a piano player uh, <laughs> in the theater and they would play to the 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 the, the the screen that was playing. And it, and it always sounded like this. <laughs> yeah, and we'll, and we'll all you'll, diminished. Well, you'll think about things like, um, think about like if Mickey, if Mickey Mouse were doing something with a mm -hmm. piano, right. And all the keys come up and every single little key falling becomes a hit on the piano. And so it's mm -hmm. every little sound effect or, or every little like, uh, I got you. Of, uh, yeah, you get it. I, 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 I call it Elmer Fudd music, right? No, sure. Be very, very quiet. Right. You know, it's yeah. like that, it's a, it's that, that stuff. Idea. I got you, I got you. Um, yeah, uh, any, anything else on, on the tornado in the barrack sequence? I, I, I really love... Um, my, one of my favorite bits is like there's this flourish on the trumpets of like da 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 when they when they turn the shot and Alejandro's just behind the cannon like I got you <laughs> and, uh, I think that's very very good. Antonio Banderas is such a good um, presence he's, in the scene. He's so funny in this movie. He's, he's really so funny. He's genuinely just really funny in this movie, and he looks really good in Zorro. But this one specifically, like the like the shot, the shot that you just said, I remember cackling watching it this time because he's just standing there behind the can. He's got his arm on the side. He's got the he got the torch. Like, <laughs> ah, I got you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is so goofy. I love it. It does. It's it's very good. There's something. There's something all the more charming and funny about it because he's not really in the Zorro costume yet. He yeah. just has his like bandana mask on, but he's in his regular shirt with a cape. And there's something that becomes even more kind of silly about it. Yeah. Um, right. And that's why I was mentioned that, you know, earlier on in the episode that this is like when the theme is established in a sort of like clumsy manner, <clears throat> because it's not, it's not sweeping. It's not majestic. It is done in a way that's kind of just like, like five degrees off what would be cool of it you know like he, they, Horner has that this way of, of of restating the theme where you know it's the Zorro theme but it doesn't reach the grand epicness of Diego's in the in the uh, opening scene you know where right. you're like kind of caught up in like the oh the the idolization of Zorro yeah. and this kind of yeah. it's kind of like you know it's kind of yeah. it's kind of silly yeah.
it's more servicing the action that it is telling you of the adventure of Zora. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, if I can, if I can extrapolate a little bit on that, like, you know, you, we talked about the beginning already, and like the beginning has all these themes, and we already talked about how it acts like it's an overture, but it's kind of like, it's kind of like perfect Zoro theme happening in the beginning, like, because like Diego is is Zoro. It, yeah. This is Zoro. He's in his prime. He's fighting the he's fighting the Spanish. He's going to fight his arch nemesis. This is Zoro. And and throughout the film, mm-hmm. because that so that doesn't happen again, not really until the end of the movie right. when Alejandro becomes Zoro. At the mines, right. At the mines. And so that becomes like the idea of like, well now Alejandro is learning to be that Zoro that Diego was, kind we'll, of. We'll talk about where I think it actually comes in, which is not at the mines. Oh yeah, no, you're right. I wrote this down. It's, it's actually comes it's, in... it's stealing the map when he's stealing the map. Um, oh, during, first his... during the duel. Yeah, that's um, yeah. that's so that we'll get into it. It's it's my next it's my beat after the next one, which my next one is actually the part you're talking about, which is the the showdown, the finale of the film, which is Leave No Witnesses. Um, and uh, it, it's a long section of the film. Um, this is the, the tracks titles, Leave No Witnesses on the album. But um, this is this is all the finale. This is the, the final battle with love, the final battle with Montero. Um, much like the opening track on the album, this is a long section devoted to the final showdown. Wait a minute. It's a long section? Yeah. Man, I'm going to use the bathroom. <laughs> In terms of score for this. Wait, I got to uh, pee. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Of score for this final showdown of the film. Uh, this section, in my opinion, and I kind of, I'm really interested to hear what you guys feel. This section feels kind of divorced from a lot of the sharp and unique choices in other parts of the film. Um, it becomes more typical of a blockbuster score, which from horror, yes. is still, it's still good, but it feels like it forsakes a lot of the personality established beforehand. You almost entirely lose the castanets. Mm-hmm. Um, and you pretty much, you have minimal to no flamenco dancers. Yeah. <clears throat> I was actually thinking the same thing as, as I was watching the movie. In fact, what did I write down in my, in my notes about that? I had this whole thing about like how, um, oh boy, these are, these are shorthanded and I cannot read anymore. I, in fact, I, I've been writing down the, the Zorro's theme as, um, spend my lifetime loving you. Uh huh. And I shortened it to S M L L Y, so I keep reading smelly. <laughs> God. During the smelly theme. Okay. Um. um yeah. No. So yeah. No. What What you're saying though is that there's. It, it is. It's. It's totally divorced from from that sort of color palette, and it just so becomes the theme. Here's the thing. I'll I'll say all this about it in kind of a broad stroke. So I'm not as crazy about the showdown in the movie, to be honest with you. Like, I find it, <clears throat> in terms of an action sequence, I find it the least uh, engaging of all of them. It's the pretty film. typical. I think I think <laughs> visually it loses a lot of the, like, what we were talking about, that fencing, dancing flair. That's mm-hmm. all gone. Like, we're not doing that anymore. Um, that's not really here anymore. Uh, so neither are the flamenco dancers for it. Um, <clears throat> you've, you've dropped a lot of Zorro's theme. It's not, it's here, but it's, it's barely here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, we get a lot of those, like those like flurried rushes that James Horner likes to use in every movie. Yeah. Uh, they, they're just, they, they, it's kind of all over the place, but I don't like, this is the thing is like, I, I, I was looking into it and like there, there were production reshoots around oh, sure. this section, um, specifically mm-hmm. and what choices they made here. I don't necessarily blame Horner for not trying to 
push the flamenco dancing sure. stuff back in because like the duels don't look like that anymore. The duels are no longer. Yeah, no, you wouldn't. They're, they're now kind of, frankly, I find them more dull. Um, <clears throat> well, there's a, there's a, there's kind of a, what, so uh, watching this again, I kind of fell on the side on, on your side here, Sam, where like the, it's so weird saying your real name on this show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. And so like the, the thing of like the, What's so interesting about the sequence is that immediately I was like, oh, this doesn't look like the rest of the movie. Um, like it's just it's just the color palette is different. It's much earthier than we've seen before, because a lot of this movie is set in like warm colors and uh, using a lot of um, using kind of a lot of uh, yeah, warm colors. It's using a lot of warm colors, whereas this is using a more a more muted color palette once you get to the mind. Totally. And you can make you can make that case because it is just kind of in, a, in a kind of you know, just kind of a bland location. Uh, there's not really a lot of, a lot of flair in this location. There's some instances where Zorro is being fun. Like when he like leads the people up to the, up to the, the water, water spout. And I think that's kind of fun, but slides like down on the shovel. Yeah. It slides down on the shovel. So cool. But like for the most part, the duels are a lot more primal than, than the rest of the movie. They're not, as you said, they're, they're kind of, they're not these dance sequences that we become accustomed to. Yeah. And the music has to kind of fall to the wayside yeah. because you just kind of have to, you just kind of have to finish it after a while. Right. Yeah, I got, and, yeah, and, and that's just real quick. And that like, it's, I, I didn't think about it until I was like thinking about the score in conjunction with it and all that. But I'm like, I've always felt this way about this third act. I've yeah. never felt like the third act was as good as the, the stuff leading up to it. This showdown. I always felt it like, feels rushed. <clears throat> it feels rushed. And it doesn't feel like it has anywhere near the, um, everything before this has felt like visual poetry yeah. and yeah. beauty. And, um, this, this like, let me take you away on this epic romantic tale. This is not meant to be like realistic. This is meant to be this, this <clears throat> beautiful romantic, uh, film that you are supposed to engage with. And then it gets to this and it's like, that's just not here anymore. And it's not here in the visual. So it's not here in the score. And uh, I, I think it's such a shame. I would say, you know, cause I, I kind of have a theory about this, you know, obviously it's not really a music department issue. It's more, it's more a film issue. And I think that, it's to do with the fact that in so much of the movie, you're trying to capture um, the essence of something you're playing homage to. Right. Um, in the same way that like Indiana Jones, like really hits like the film noir with it's like cinematography and just atmosphere and stuff. Like there's so much of that in there where it's just paying homage. Indiana Jones doesn't really ever drop the ball though. In this movie, it's like, well, Anyway, in this movie, it's it's more like I feel like they they stay, they started with that idea, and then at the end they were like, okay, now we need to have the climactic payoff. But in trying to pay tribute to a Zorro, uh, you know, world in classic Zorro, there would be one fight at the end. It would be Zorro versus whoever, right? And and. In this, it's like there's four fights going on. You know, it's just like it, you're, you're constantly going back and forth. In fact, it feels a lot like, uh, not to reference this film uh, it, again in the episode, but it kind of feels like it, at the end of the like the first Mummy movie, you know, where like you have like the the parallel fight sequence is going on and the tension's real high at the end, you know, where they're, they're fighting over the books and stuff. And like somebody's got an Oxynamoon, somebody's got Imhotep, somebody's got the mummies. You know, like, it, like there's like all these fights going on. I found that that scene in The Mummy was a lot more climactic though because it's serving a film that's not trying to be an homage i mean it is it's trying to be an homage but i mean like i think they 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 took like their own unique 
direction with the mummy. This movie sure. is very homage driven, right? And the end is just kind of feels like a well, it's just like a Hollywood ending because I feel like they didn't really have anything anywhere to go with it. Like it just kind of feels like they had to cap it off with the fight sequences. I think it's like an emotional as like there's there's two solid emotional cores in this movie and it's the rivalry between Captain Love and Alejandro and Montero and Diego. Mm -hmm. And so like when you have when you're focusing on just those two fights, I do I do think there's some emotionality still there Um, because you've been following these two characters, these four characters. And now you finally finally have this clash. But because we're not just focused solely on their fight on their fight because we're focused on how do we move around this space that is not built to have a climactic fight mm-hmm. how do we how do we um like the fight between the Di- the Montero and Diego is just on a cliff <laughs> just, yeah. um yeah, and it's yeah. kind of it's just kind of boring and 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 that's just not been the movie up until this point it's kind of weird and jarring that it happens if in another world, I could see a, a better a better sequence being a four on a, a, a two on two fight in a much more interesting location, and that's your climactic fight, right? Yeah, I mean, you could have you could have made it a climax of the the sword play, right? You could have make it yeah. made it more like a flamenco climax, and like yeah. leaned into that in, instead of like backing away <laughs> to make it just more of like a, a like I would say a typical Hollywood climax it's a very just like man this is the, this is the fight sequence we right. got it we got to save the the, the the good guys and the good guys win the bad guys lose you know that, that well, that's like, what it feels like and i and i think like part of the problem is like it's so dedicated to getting to that big mine explosion as its big final set piece its big kaboom if you will that like the, the mine and the people getting out should have been resolved and then you do the fight Yes, sure. and like that is you're right, Brandon, because that's where the emotionality is. But the the visuals are not paying to that emotionality. You know, they're not they're not catering to the emotional storytelling that they were doing up to this point in the film. Yeah, and I so, lost like, track of the, the the hostages altogether. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so like it it, it just it, it falls kind of flat, even though it, you've had all this build up, but it's like this is nowhere near the the beauty of what we were doing with these these characters, this rich buildup of tension and tension and fighting between them. Um, you know what? Something is missing from that because mm. the, the, the hostages feel like set dressing, right? Whereas earlier in the movie, all the like, like people that Zorro influenced, they, they feel like characters, like even like the, like the, the old nanny character that comes in just briefly. It's like, well, there's a whole character, you know, that, 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 um, that is within this, like sure. this town setting and stuff. And it, at the end there, like, we don't we don't have a line to any of those familiar characters anymore. You know, it's it, it just kind of feels like background. Oh, and, and we get a sense of and early in the film that people who help Zorro end up in this mine. That's what I mean. That's what I'm saying. Like, where are they? We, because we see the Padre and we do and see what, the Padre, and, but we don't well, see him as much here. But we don't see him at the end. And that's the point I was trying to make is yeah, we yeah. don't see him at the end. And if we but we do see the kid and I. I feel like we should have seen the Padre because sure. that would kind of give us the emotional stakes of like, oh, that's the Padre. He helped. He helped Zorro. And because he helped Zorro, he's trapped in this mind. Yeah. So now it, there's emotional stakes for Zorro to have to save this person because it's his fault that he's in there. They kind of severed that dramatic thread altogether, you know, like yeah. I'll deal with you later. And it's like, oh, they dealt with him. What's going to happen? I guess nothing. I think it's it's just very messy how they think of like dealing with the mine and and also dealing with the the end of these rivalries. I think that just didn't come together. And so the score couldn't come together to support it in the way that I think it should have. Horner 
was quoted at the time as saying at the end of the film, there's this big sword fight and that is very conventional as it should be. There's no other way to do that. And I'd say for how it's filmed, he's probably correct. There really yeah. is no other way to do it because it is filmed very conventional. Whereas like everything before that wasn't, yeah. um, nothing wrong with the score. There's, <laughs> there. there's a lot of other, there's a lot of other incredible score moments. Uh, I want to focus on, so I won't, I won't harp on this t- for too long. I will only note one other thing. The score does dip back into a beat that I love from earlier when cutting to the Montero and Diego duel, there's this little bit resurrecting some of the music used during their battle earlier in the film when it's on the steps in Diego's home. It is brought back briefly for a moment uh, in their fight there. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that, that particular beat of music because it's one of my favorites, but it's, but it's very brief here. I wouldn't I wouldn't say it, it gets to do very much here. Right. Um, OK, let's talk about one of my personal favorite sequences in the whole film, which is the stealing of the map. Um, this uh, stealing the map is the track on the album, but uh, again, featuring great use of the flamenco dancers for rhythm. Um, there's this incredible tension held as Zoro battles with both Montero and Love. You get the, the, the mm. duel between all three of them at once. Here, the, the foot stamps take control with some brass crescendos. Interestingly, uh, there's some some really thundering piano lines in here, if I'm correct. I think I am, uh, Jeremy. Say it again? I, uh, so I think that we've got uh, brass crescendos. We've got um, thundering piano lines, I think, coming in on this sequence. Uh, you might not remember this one specifically enough, but I, I think I... I think I labeled these correctly. Um, trying to, I'm trying to get I'm, better about picking out my instruments. No, that's good. No, you're you're doing good. I'm actually, I'm pretty impressed. I was reading over your notes. I'm pretty impressed at how 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 good you've been able to dissect these these scores. You know, that, like bravo. I'm I'm actually I'm listening to it just kind of like underneath what you're saying. I've got it real quiet, but I'll, I'll listen for that. I don't know if I hear piano in there yet. But. Okay. So in in sealing the map uh, in the track, it, it builds this majestic rendition of the Zoro theme that's at um, is that Shakuhachi on the track on, <laughs> yeah uh, on the track it's at four forty five. Um, oh great! This this cue continues indulging in the emotive action that was in the Plaza of Execution, um, and it finishes with another triumphant performance of the Zoro theme. So to to me, Brandon, um, going back to your point earlier, this is the moment where you know now he's Zoro. Now he's getting his Zoro uh, performance, his Zoro theme, yeah. like. De La Vega at the beginning. This is the bu- the bit where he really gets to showcase that, and the score um, really embraces that. I think the battle that happens around the the table um, in the courtyard is it's just so. I love it. I think that's what it, great adventure films are for. Is, is is the way that Horner has blend the main theme into this action and adventure feel. Oh.
he's matching the action without making it echo each hit again, not Mickey Mousing, but rather accenting the vibes uh, of what's going on in the film. I, I know you want to say something, Brandon, so go ahead. Well, yeah, I just think that, like, this 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 sequence is 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 a mirror of the of the opening of the film right like this is this is kind of what that climactic battle is missing um just in sense of like flair and things like that like the mirror of the first of the first sequence with diego needs to be at the end of the movie but it's not it's kind of 75 percent yeah 75 percent through the movie and i and that's kind of a weird place to put it however like you sparks it is my favorite sequence of the movie um and i i i think that this is it's so much fun it's so intriguing the music is right there with you like you're you're just really you're just really vibing with this scene because now alejandro is zorro Mm -hmm. and it and it continues throughout like it's it literally from the moment he steals the map and shows up on screen as zorro to the end of the horse chase sequence is just an incredible sequence of film it kind of feels like they wrote that as the parallel to the opening sequence to be like, now he's Zorro. And then they were like, ah, shit. Now we got to go stop the bad guys again. We still got to end the movie. <laughs> ah, man. Right. We already yeah. closed our thread. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's true. Um, that, that is kind of how it feels. Um, but it's this this particular scene, God, just like the way he moves in the space around the round table the, the, with all the guards and mm-hmm. fighting Montero and love it. it it's so good. Um, there's this bit. It's my it's my favorite bit with score and visual in the entire film. It's this bit where Zorro flips over the back of a guard. And as he does it, the theme, like the adventure theme swells. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he comes running up to the table and it's like, it's, it's the best of classic adventure films. Um, I, I, I love it. I love it. I think it's what this movie's for. Um, It's hard not to feel like Zimmer, uh, Hans Zimmer was later inspired by moments like this when crafting the theme for Will and Elizabeth in the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. Sure. Um, I would even argue that there's almost this this transitional sound you can hear where if you play the adventure theme out to its end, you could also pick up Will and Elizabeth's theme right after and it would be like, this is the same thing. Um, it's at least living in the same palette. Wasn't the... I'm going to get his name wrong. Klaus Bedelt. Klaus Bedelt, yeah, that's it. Yeah, so <laughs> here's the thing. Klaus Bedelt is the name on the score, but not the person who actually composed the themes because that was in fact still Hans Zimmer because of stuff that I learned in research at a different point in my life. But Oh, Hans I gotta Bedell, know about that. Yeah, Hans Zimmer actually did most of the composing for Curse of the Black Pearl. He's just not credited for it. That's so backwards. Um, uh, yeah, so we'll, <laughs> we'll probably get into that at a later date, but there's, yeah, there's, there's I want to do. I want to do the Pirates of the Caribbean. We got to do Pirates. I, I do too, yeah. Uh, we'll get into it at a later date, but yes, um, Klaus Bedelt, uh, uh, I, I forget if the circumstances were that Hans Zimmer was going to be busy, and like, it, so the whole thing was that like Hans Zimmer was contracted for another film score, so even though they he was wanted for pirates, he wasn't really allowed to do it. And so Klaus Bedelt was like stepping in. I think this is the specifics, but I might be a little off here. But um, that Klaus Bedelt was stepping in, but like Hans Zimmer was still feeding the themes. Mm. Well, because um, he he replaced Alan Silvestri. Yeah. Silvestri was supposed to do the theme. So I was wondering if there was maybe even something left over from him. So um, anyway, we'll we'll get into that. Another yeah, it was a different movie. But, but, <laughs> but yeah, let's. T- Give giving credit where credit is due. The the themes of pirates franchise essentially do belong to Hans Zimmer. Um, okay, uh, this sequence of music that's used for the stealing the map section it's one of Hor- Horner's favorites in the films. Uh, as he said in two thousand five, Ste- this is a direct quote from him. 
Stealing the map is Spanish music is excuse me is Spanish music the way I understood it augmented by my version of it. It's torrid. It's Latin. It has an energy to it that is beyond what the world's largest orchestras could conjure up. That's his pull quote about this. Um, I do think stealing the map is just an incredible sequence. I think I think both in score in terms of visuals he's doing so much wonderful stuff with it. I truly truly love it. Yeah, I agree. I I think this is this is everything about this about this version about this part of the movie just sings yeah um and this is again like a great use of that that main theme but again it's very adventurous here it's very you know uh it's not quite the romantic version it's this very adventure driven one you know it's kind of it's kind of you know it's like what we talked about with like the batman right like last week like music musical composition needs to kind of follow the movie structure a little bit of like you know the music is 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 kind of if you listen to the music, you should be able to hear the the arc of the character, like you can with the Batman. I, I said I said last week, and you can hear too. Like up to this point, like if you listen to the soundtrack and you're like, oh, he's not quite Zorro yet. But when you hear this, is like, oh, that's this is Zorro. This right. is he is Zorro now. Um, and I think that's that's just really something we lost, honestly. Kill him. <laughs> Yeah. Any further, <laughs> any further thoughts on this section, Jeremy? Um, no, I, I think I just I think we hit it with just saying that this is the this is the this should have been the climax of the film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I wonder what has if it you could structure the, this as the climax. It at least has the correct energy <clears throat> the climax should have had. I think it yeah. feels more like the like the old you know serials like that. This is where the kind of climax that those would have because they didn't have the kind of budget to blow up an entire mine. Sure. You know, so like this, this feels so much truer to the the series. And then, right. like, like I said, it just feels like an afterthought to go like, oh, we got to go stop the bad guys th- th- for real this time in the big Hollywood way. Yeah, right. Just takes away from the movie. I agree. Yeah. Um. So now we're moving kind of away from the main theme of the film, and we're going to talk about some other some other parts that don't involve the theme as much um, that are standouts, I think, in the score. The um, ride! The biggest, the biggest one is the ride. Um, it's the one that, like, people who love the score will reference this track, The Ride. This is the sequence where right after stealing the map um, uh, I'll, and then after the little tete-a-tete with uh, uh, Elena is when Alejandro is going after his horse because Tornado takes off and uh, going after the guards chasing after his horse. Um, this is one of the strongest divergences from the main theme into something else. The, uh, the um, sequence where real, quickly, yeah. it, real quick is that is that kind of like that's yeah. what I'm thinking, thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's a good thing. Um, the sequence where Zora rides off after the guards, uh, it's it, it doesn't over rely on the theme, but it only briefly references it in in favor of something more entertaining. Um, so a lot of this is not driven by the main theme anymore. It's it's Horner kind of doing something else. And, well, um, no, no, he's not doing something else. It still starts with that damn Shakuhachi. <laughs> you know what I mean. You know what I mean. And actually. Um, I'm listening to it right now. I'm listening to you talk, but I, I, I have I have a thought about this. I think it might be I might be right. 
what I will say real quick is um, this is a this is a note that I found that I thought was really uh, emblematic of the film. Um, Horner revealed in an interview that this scene was a central battleground over being uh, unconventional with the score. Uh, Martin Campbell and Doug Claiborne, a producer on the film, tried to change this specific sequence. Um, they made it uh, a Horner crafted version that lost the flamenco, then took away the castanets, and then ultimately the guitar in favor of more typical Western instruments in film mm. scoring. And once they put it together with the visuals, they recognized that the score was overpowering everything else and switched it back to the original version, which gave Horner a lot more leeway to win those arguments in other sections with the flamenco and everything later. Mm. Um, so I, I think it's valuable to point out that like Horner had to kind of fight to keep these Latin flavors in the film. Wow. Um, uh, they, they were not desired. Like uh, it, it, an amount of the flamenco dancer was like, Okay, and then like every every piece of those different instruments from what would have been a conventional score was kind of a little bit of a fight, whether that was always with Campbell, not necessarily, but definitely with the producers of the film that they wanted something that was more typical. <laughs> and Horner had to champion not doing that. This you is know, what happens when you have a bunch of white people make a movie about a Spanish hero. So, you know, with all the criticisms that I get laid down, like sometimes I, I, I wonder about intention and, 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 and stuff and using the the Rachmaninoff like sometimes it's like what if he was just like you know under the deadline and somebody disagreed with him and he's like well I gotta put something here I'll just put you that Rachmaninoff thing it always seems to work everybody loves that you, know? <laughs> you never know how, how, how you know the, the, the like the full artistic process and how people come to these conclusions and stuff and I mean you know, maybe it wasn't all just like I, I want to I want people to think I wrote Rachmaninoff you know like well then why'd you why'd you choose that little simple bit you know maybe, right. maybe it's just that yeah I do yeah. I do think it's very valuable because again like I'll say that I, I think what's so important about the score is having those different sounds and and clearly James Horner thought the same and and the fact that and it makes sense at that time in Hollywood that like they were really <clears throat> pushing against that they wanted all the common orchestral sure sounds it's, it's uh, like that to today you, right. you know, like you try to use woodwinds in a in a modern score. People are going to throw that out, you know. Yeah, well, it's ba I mean, back back here, they were all trying to they were still chasing the John Williams that yeah. sound. Yeah. Um, we were still in this era. I mean, luckily, we had like 30 years where people were just trying to be John Williams um, and maybe even longer. And, and nowadays it's it's just more like a, let's just slap something together real quick and then we get it out there. Mm, it's more it's more Zimmer now. Actually, that's not even totally true. It's so like today, I think Danny Elfman's a good a good um, example of this. It's more about um, hiring somebody who's got a very particular vibe, a very particular aesthetic, because then you know what you're getting. You know, it's like, well, I want Danny Elfman to do my score. Well, then I'm going to get, you know, a lot of a lot of these kind of like, you know, you know, like that, that, that kind of stuff or like yeah, like I'm gonna have I'm gonna have that in my score because I want a Danny Elfman score. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, with Horner, he was one of the last masters, you know, of that era, like the Jerry Goldsmith, John Williams, early Silvestri kind of kind of era where you could write anything you ask him to, you know. Mm -hmm. Which is weird why he keeps choosing that shakuhachi. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe what happened was he won all these arguments about the Spanish thing. And he's like, so now that you've listened to me and you know how good the Spanish thing is, check out this flute that I got. I'm going to put this in the score. And they're like, well, you seem to be right about everything else 
uh, James, so go right ahead. And then they watch the final cut of the movie. They go, you know, you kind of overused that. <laughs> and he's like, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. I really like it. It's my new toy. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's film score. Film score development is something that I've, I'm quite possibly more fascinated with than film scores themselves these days. Like the just the evolution of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm there with you. <laughs> yeah, I I I I, I, lo- I really like this score though. The um because we're talking about the the horse chase scene, but we we skipped over the um. The fight between Elena and... Ed. I'm going to come back to it later. Never mind, I'll wait. <laughs> I, I did I did just want to highlight this one in particular. I, I, I There was a method to my madness, um, uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll go there in just a moment. Uh, just real quick on the on the ride, uh, I, I feel like Horner kind of knew there were no real stakes to this. Um, you know, you've gotten out of the stealing the map sequence, which had the most stakes, and then right right in between these, as you alluded to, is the, the little battle with Elena, um, which that also, no real stakes. And so, you know Zoro's going to get his horse and not get caught by these guards. So he's just kind of having fun with the score. He's just kind of doing something that is very, um, I think, more classic adventure film score, but using the flavors that he's been able to mix in right, which, with which... this film. Which allows the which allows the audience to kind of feel like Zoro feels right. Like there's no stakes really here for Zoro because he's he knows he's gonna get out too. Right. He's, yeah, he's, I'm gonna get my horse and I'm it's, gonna. It's all about just like damn horse. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, it's all about it's the not, horse. There's there's no other real like tension here. And yeah, it's, and, a, it's, it's a good time. And it allows the audience to have that good time with Zoro because you're like, oh, how the the important thing isn't is Zoro gonna get out of it? Is how and how fun is it gonna be? Right. Any any other things? I I thought you raised your hand for a second, Jeremy. No, no, I just fidget. Oh, gotcha. Um, I gotta gonna, think about. I'm gonna go to this little note that I called the swindle. Um, there's this. It, it's very small. Uh, just this excellent little bit of classic Western music that Horner uses that I just wanted to highlight. Uh, it's when the brothers, uh, the Morietta brothers and Jack have pulled up one over on the men and they have them tied on the cactuses and they're going away on their little wagon. Yeah, sure. It gets into the, like the classic like. The, the like you know the Wells Fargo wagon coming down like the yeah I know what you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 and, and I, I just love it it's a nice little burst of a very fun energy right before Captain Love shows up but I Can think I? it's really 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 fun. <laughs> Can I bring up real quickly just something in that scene? When, like when, like when they first off that opening that opening scene is so much fun. Like when it's like I thought you were tied up. That's because you are stupid. Um, and they like throws <laughs> they like throw the rope over them and like trips over everyone. Yeah. I don't know if you noticed, but like the 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 um, when he's when they're tripping them, there's this girl hunched over the thing like making bread maybe, and she, yo, and she never stops. She, she just never keeps going. Stops. <laughs> Doesn't blink. Antonio Banderas runs right over her and trips the beetle. She's just like constantly, just like I everyone is dead around her, and it's just. 
I this is a just a Tuesday. <laughs> I just thought that was really funny. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I almost forgot. She knows what's not her business. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, they, they, there's, there's a foot between her and the first guard. Right, and so sure. she's just like, nope. Nothing. No business of mine. Yeah. <laughs> Very um, funny. <laughs> that is funny. Uh, real quick, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the dance um, between Elena and Alejandro. Um, some, My time has come. Some have suggested <laughs> that this... So this is not in the, in the Scores album. Um, oh, yeah, I was going to ask about that. How much of the... A bunch of the score is missing. I kept looking for underscore moments, and they're just... Yeah, fair, a fair chunk, or it's, like, been blended into tracks that you wouldn't expect it to be in. Yeah. Like brought up earlier with the training and the fencing lesson. Um, but for this one in particular, from everything I found... Some have suggested that this is a tango instrumental version of Cancion del Mariachi, which is written and performed by Los Lobos with Banderas singing it in the Rodriguez film, Robert Rodriguez's film Desperado. Robert um, Rodriguez is going to film this movie. Uh, and really? So I, yeah. He oh, was I would like, to see, I would like the, to see that. He was the first director hired for this movie. Mm. I wonder if there's the connection there. I don't know. I mean, ben, Antonio Banderas sings the song in that movie, so like. Right. So th that's why. <laughs> that's why. That's why Antonio Banderas is actually attached to this movie is because Robert Rodriguez was going to film it because they that's really liked what he did with Desperado. Sure. Um, which I think is the first Des Desperado is the first one with Antonio because El, Ma er, El Mariachi has a different actor, um, and he and so because the studio really liked what they did with that low budget, they were like, okay, Robert Rodriguez, you come in, and so Antonio Banderas was attached to that because of R Rodriguez. So I wonder if that's maybe why that song is there. Maybe it's just a holdover from that first from that first idea. I don't know. I don't know because the other thing is like I listen to it and I listen to both back to back and I can kind of hear where people are coming from, but I I'm not a hundred percent on this and like I found no official confirmation that this is true. Um, but the thing is like if it were right, you would assume that it would have been credited, even if it is a instrumental version. They would credit Good the point. Los Lobos Boys and their song since they are referencing it, but there's no credits for it in the film. So I'm not sure. I really don't know. A lot of people have said that this is true, but there's no official word on it. So it sounds like it is perhaps Horner creating an instrumental version of that song. It does still sound like it's still Horner's flavor while he's clearly basing it off of something. Um, what is true is that the sequence is amazing. This version of the music just doesn't appear outside of the film. And um, I don't know. It's perfect it, for the yeah, dance it's, between the two of them, but we really don't know what it is. It's not on the score, right? Like you can't, yeah. It's not on the score. That's and there's the, no credits the, about it in the film. So, like, I really don't know. And I couldn't I, I really looked and I couldn't find anyone saying for sure what this piece of music is. I always find it really weird when, like, the whole score is missing. Like, what? I don't. What why? I will say is I'm confident. <laughs> I'm confident Horner didn't compose it out of nowhere. It's certainly based off of something. Well, there's enough evidence. To, yeah. To, to support it's, it's, that. Whether it's a instrumental version of the song they're mentioning, the Cancion del Mariachi or not. I don't know. Had that song already been made? Yeah. I mean, you know. <laughs> I mean, and like, and, and like, and there is the connection with Antonio Banderas 
and like mm-hmm. as Brandon mentioned before, Robert Rodriguez, but specifically you know Banderas. So like, I, it could be. I have no clue. I really yeah. don't know. Um, no that's all say. the information we got. Okay. Um, I want to talk about the track that's called Elena and Esperanza. So oh, I want to talk about the dance. Oh, okay. Go ahead. What else did you have to say about the the dance? Is there a dance uh, in this movie? Shut up. Um, uh, I, so, okay. So it's my favorite sequence. It's one of my favorite sequences in the movie. And one of the reasons, so I wanted to talk about, um, not necessarily. So I'll try to relate this to music as best I can because, because I'm not as literate as the two of you about this sort of thing. So I'm coming at this from a slightly more ignorant place. Um, but when we talked about Evangelion, the third Evangelion film, um, <laughs> there's a, a piano, piano sequence, yeah. the piano sequence, right? Um, and I, I don't remember what I said, but I'm pretty sure, sh- but I felt this way and I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure I said this, but it's, it's a sex scene. It's yeah. 100- oh, oh, it's a hundred percent a sex scene in Evangelion. That's, that's for sure. And I think the same thing happens here. I think every the- scene with Elena and Alejandro seems to be some sort of weird sex scene. He's so vigorous father. And, and I really, I think that like, <laughs> I think it's such an interesting I, I, it's such an interesting sequence to me, like the the dance, how the dance informs their relationship, and because it, it's not using the it's not using what is primarily the theme uh, that you would relate to these two characters, but it's this it's this beautiful, vigorous as as Elena says, <laughs> sex scene that that is happening around and 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 it, it's done in a way to be bold and be loud to get uh, to get Montero to be threatened by Alejandro with mm-hmm. Elena. That's tango, right? Right. So like, <laughs> so like he, so like Montero is like it's meant to, it's meant to signify, it's meant for for Banderas to be like, hey, I'm a threat, I'm a sexual threat to your daughter. You need me to be out of this room. Yes, and yes. I think that's such an interesting. I think because of that, it's such a fascinating scene. Um, and it, it's it and it, it by God, it's is it sexy? It's well, spicy as hell. And what's interesting is you certainly wouldn't want to use the. For that. Yeah. I think that would have been kind of either too on the nose or too far away from what they were trying to say. Like, I don't think that would have fit at all. Right. And so what's so, so strange about that, but, but so what's so strange about what Sparks was saying about it not being uh, something, it's not, it's, it's incidental music, but it's not, um, it's, we don't know where it came from. It's not used again. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not a theme that's used again uh, to relate to Elena. It's it's just in this one moment. And it's it, it, I don't know. I just think I just think it's incredibly effective. Well, there's got to be an interesting story about that. I want to I want to dig more on that. That's 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 cool. That's I just think it's a really it's, it's an incredibly effective moment. No, it is. I, I agree. Um, the only reason I wasn't stopping to highlight too much about it is because, you know, we, we, we don't even know for a fact if Horner composed the sequence or not. Sure. Um, it's, it's totally up in the air. Uh, we assume we have no idea. Um, uh, let's, let's transition to the other like sexy time between them, which is the fencing, uh, lesson track. Um, it, like I said, there's a lot of Mickey mousing here. Um, mm-hmm. that is for the effect of making this very funny, very light, very yes. flirtatious. Uh, and I think it works really well because the chemistry before between the performers is so good. So it all lands. Yes. And it's another sexy scene. Yeah. Um, I, I really like this era of blockbuster mainly. I think, I think this day as I get older, I'm, I'm, I'm I appreciate sexiness more than I did as a kid, but um, th- there is um 
it, it's such a foundational moment. It's more foundational this moment than the than the tango scene for their relationship because it's it's rather than rather than Alejandro using uh, Elena using the music to tell to tell Montero that he's a threat. It's it's Alejandro flirting. Uh, in a way, in a playful way, not in like a, not in like a, I'm going to take advantage of you way. Like Tango can sometimes be 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 seen as, but like this is very much like. I mean, I guess he does undress her, but <laughs> um, it, it, it's it's like in a way that like they clear this like this like um, it's almost kind of like a cute meet, but after they've met, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's kind of it's such an interesting such an interesting place to put this because this feels like. This is the first time they've met. This is the, their first dance. Well, but it's not. Elena technically meets three versions of this character. Right? Yes, that's true. Right? There's like the, 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 the bandit version that she's immediately taken with. Right. The gentleman version that she's a little kind of like, hmm, who's this guy? And then like, I guess, Zoro Zora. slash him, you know, who he becomes, yeah. who he goes into, uh, who she eventually marries. So I guess in the third time you got it right. Because you're right, because the third time she meets this this character, this is now the fully formed Zorro. This is mm-hmm. because we just talked about it, like the score has told us that this is Zorro now. Yeah, exactly. He, he has it, become Zorro. And because of the way that she doesn't recognize him over and over again, it feels like three meetings. Yeah, right? that's a good. That's a really good point. And like, I feel like that that's a good way of like structuring the character development. I mean, albeit it's a horrible, you know, Vestel test failure because now she's totally just an object in 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 designed to formulate his character growth. But like, it works. It was it was effective. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Sometimes sometimes it just works. Uh, <laughs> I mean, hey man. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Catherine Taylor Jones is quite something. Well, and it comes down to just them having really great chemistry. Like they do. They sometimes do. that's all that that's that those those tests can fail, uh, and these films will hold up because the chemistry between those characters is just so goddamn good. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And that's how classic films wrote on that as well. So like, yeah, I think I, mean, that's, I, always, I think that's a big part of it. I always kind of <laughs> go back to what the what we. I mean, to be fair, we don't actually know the script that the Adams family said this, but um, for the Adams family, like supposedly the script said, uh, I know this is a kid's movie. I think Barry Sonnenfeld directed that film, but like, I know this is a kid's movie, but whenever Morticia and Gomez are not on screen, we need to assume that they are having sex. If they are on, <laughs> if they are on screen, they want to have sex. And if they are off screen, they are having sex. That is the chemistry we need to convey. And like, I take that to like every movie. And I talked about it a little bit with the Batman with Selena and, and Bruce, but like, this is that again, this is, this is the two of them clearly just want to bone each other the moment they lay eyes on each other. And like, that's the kind of like sexually charged chemistry that we get with like Will and Elizabeth, Evie and Rick, uh, Elena and and and, and Alejandro, as, as I mentioned, and I I think that's such a I that's I love that kind of chemistry so much. I frankly. love porn too. Um, you know, it's not it's, that it's, it's very realistic. <laughs> <laughs> but like, but like, it's that it's that kind of like it's that kind of sexually charged chemistry that allows this relationship to work so well on screen because the two of them have, uh, because when we see this kind of fight sequence, the two of them are uh, are clearly enamored with each other, and they they kind of just don't really know. Like, I mean, he's playing with her, but and she's just kind of like, I'm going to fight you, but also I really want to bone you. Right. Um... I don't know. No, I, I, I think you're correct, because like that is where when that hits, 
that provides for like you gave the examples, Will and Elizabeth, Evie and Rick. Um, the score is able to play with that. The score yeah. is able to connect with those characters in this in this grander romantic idea. Um, so now I want to talk about this. This is the last bit of the score that we really have to dig into, which is it's in the Elena and Esperanza track. It's in a couple of other places. We're going to get into it. Um, uh, but one of my favorite moments in the score and the film is the duel between Montero and Diego at the beginning. Uh, the mm. action is great. It features them fighting on these steps. you got the shadows on the wall. Uh, the influence of the theme is here in the score, but it's, it's very subtle and it's twisted into being this more menacing version. as the shadows are dancing along the wall in their duel, there's, there, there's again, like this kind of fourth version, uh, that's very small of the mask of Zorro theme. That's, that's this darker, uh, stain on it. Um, so this descending tragedy motif is mixed in with the adventure. And it's, it's one of my favorite bits that Horner has in the whole film in terms of score, uh, which I really, really like. Um, and which, and which also, theme is it? But so this is the this is the this is the Mask of Zorro theme baked into when they're fighting on the steps. Okay. Um, it's in there, but it's it's like twisted in there. It's under other things, but it's there and it's made more sad in its sound, um, more tragic in its sound because it's it's going to lead to the death of Esperanza. Right. Um, and then you get the tragic swelling use of the theme again as Montero takes Elena away and the home is burning. It's 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 still the Mask of Zorro theme. Oh, uh, for here the, it is. For, sure. for what I'm talking about, but it's very, but it's very like somber in mm -hmm. its nature now. really like that but importantly in the same section of of the track elena and esperanza is um uh this other like we alluded to earlier diego de la vega theme that's in there this is the dun 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 um that we talked about at the beginning um oh i know yeah 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 so so in in this beat it is uh uh, beginning on the Spanish guitar and then it's transferring to the woodwinds. It builds up to this really big climax with a very um, lush and full romantic string section that encapsulate, encapsulates Diego and Esperanza's love. This becomes that, that, that beat, that, that dun, 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 becomes Diego's kind of his motif and theme.
we don't get a lot of it in this film. It's it's very rarely brought up, but when it is brought up, it's there. It's it's there for um, uh, one of his interactions with Elena, and it's there again for um, his passing at the end of the film. In the track that is Diego's Goodbye, you have this transition from Diego's theme, this dun, 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 dun. Wait a minute, though. Yeah. Well, you know what that is. Heroes rise. Yes. Well, so, so heroes I, fall. Yes. So I'll get into that because, like, basically, that pop culture song blends Diego and Zorro's theme. Which, yes. Again, yes. so does the end of the film. The, mm. the 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 final track is Diego's goodbye, and it's blending this. Um, it's, uh, it's, Diego. It's, it's the verse of the song. Right. It's it's blending the Diego theme into the main Mask of Zorro theme, and and mm-hmm. they're counterparting each other because they're they're kind of using some of the same. Again, like film score language we've talked about before, it's using the same color palette and everything, but it's it is playing a slightly different thing. But it bridges into each other, um, and it gives us both for both of these versions the most cathartic performance of them in the film is in this yeah. final section, yeah, um, which is the the finale and and elegy to Diego's life and the beginning of of Alejandro's. Well, you know, my my ears are like hypersensitive to that pop song because of our connection to that you pop did it. song. Sure, sure, and so. I heard that over and over again. Like, I think I can remember three or four times that I heard that specific and, and, and just always in my mind thinking, Oh, there's just the B, the B side of the, the, the Zorro theme again. I hadn't made the connection that it was more focused on Diego. That's interesting, especially since that's what's sung over the line, the heroes rise, heroes fall. I mean, that is the passing of the torch. So interesting, interesting observation. What's the next yeah. line? Rise Swing again through it all. Dance with me. <laughs> <laughs> so what came, what, what did, did James Horner write that song? We'll with talk about the, it. Um, okay. Those are his melodies. We, so. can, we can move on. We can move on to that and talk about it. Or if you had any thoughts you wanted to say about the, the duel between Montero and Diego at the beginning of the film, that section of score or Diego's theme in general. Um, yeah, I, I think th- people have listened to my ignorant thoughts enough. <laughs> <laughs> Stop it. Um, <laughs> You, you've had great input, uh, Jeremy. Jeremy Brandon, uh, any anything to add on these things? No, I'm actually having trouble placing everything in that in that bit. Um, um, I, if you if you can pull up the Elena and Esperanza track, yeah, I've got it and here. Go, here and go kind of into the middle esque. Uh, middle and this and where were you where was that part you were talking about with the, with the spanish guitars i'm sure the audience has already heard your cut in at this point but like oh so the the beginning on the spanish guitar that's the beginning of the Atlanta. that's that's it. that's when i'm talking about diego scene that's not the duel. Oh, okay that's, okay that's talking and the duel, yeah the duel, the duel comes about halfway through after after it gets all slow yeah. and sullen yeah, right yeah, yeah i got gotcha, you yeah. i got gotcha. you okay yeah i remember and buying so, the soundtrack at um what was that music store that we had at the mall uh Sun, suncoast not that one. Oh, the warehouse. The warehouse. Whoa, man. You unlocked a, a hidden memory. Wow. <laughs> yeah, uh, I remember buying the soundtrack. God, we used to hang out there. That was like the place we'd go and like look through the bins of movies. Yep. Mm-hmm. Damn. I will uh, I will an- answer your question, Brandon. Um, so I Want to Spend My Lifetime Loving You is recorded with the voices of Mark Anthony and Tina Arena. Right. It's written by James Horner and lyricist Will Jennings. It's created out of the main theme for this film and again, as we referenced, the Diego theme as well. Mm-hmm. Jennings and Horner had teamed together to write My Heart Will Go On for Celine Dion to record and go with Titanic. So they came back together to make this one. 
Yeah, really? That, that, a, that song didn't do very well. Why would they team up again? But this would become <laughs> somewhat of a staple for James Horner that he would create a pop song based around his themes, right? I, I That's guess a I, Hollywood staple, though, at I, the time. But I, think, but I think in a way, My Heart Guilt Will Go On, I guess, established that, but this, I guess cements it because he does this right after not that yeah. this is the this is not the next film to release but this is the next score he worked on i uh, i i definitely see that as more of like a an industry thing where somebody was like wow my heart will go on really did well hey horner you did that you want to do another one you know like yeah there's a whole period of time in the early 2000s where this was a thing too i mean it was in the 70s and 80s too but like kind of died for a while and came back well i know i know that <clears throat> The Horner would do this again with I See You when with Avatar. Um, and but I, I don't know where I don't know he did again with Avatar. <laughs> I don't know how many how many films he did this with at, between Titanic and Avatar, how, how frequent this was. And because like this became something that I know, I know that it, it's it's somewhat common with. Uh, film scores in general, but this became known as something that Horner would do. And I wonder if that's maybe unfounded or if that's because he did it quite frequently, more frequently than other composers did. It's a typecast thing, right? I mean, like you do, you do my heart will go on. Somebody's going to ask for that again. Yeah. You know, you give it, you, you give a mouse a cookie. <laughs> By the way, I saw Titanic in theaters recently uh, for like, it's whatever anniversary, man, that, my heart goes. My heart will go on. It's a freaking great song. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so just the last note on the the pop song is that they wanted the love that was expressed in the song to be just as clearly matching in passion for it being whether it was about lovers or a parent to a child. So that was kind of the goal with it right. again, like kind of referencing what we were talking about with the film. This is a this is a great song. Like honestly, I really like this song. Um, we are running a little long, so I'm going to take us into kind of wrapping up our, our end. So, um, we're going to introduce something called the scoreboard. Um, this yeah, is yeah. something that we, we talked about that we realized we should have done with the first one. So we'll real quickly <laughs> and retroactively do it for the Batman and then we'll do Ooh. it for the mask of Zorro. Um, there are two prompts to this. And so, um, we'll do prompt number one, which is, uh, how does the score do in working with the film on a scale from one to 10, 10 being the highest for Batman for Batman, for the Batman. So, one. <laughs> you guys, no no pull the tab out a little more there's another number in there so oh sorry there. sorry <laughs> um well i mean for me interestingly enough in in how the, the film works or how the score works with the film i, I mean like i give batman a 10 like that right. for me it's like it perfectly embodies the direction that hollywood should be going in with music production in the modern age. Mm -hmm. um, how the score stands without the visuals though, I would put it a little lower. You know, I would, I would probably give it like a six or a seven. Cause I don't, I, I don't find myself enjoying the score unless I'm really like trying to actively watch the movie in my head with it. Sure. There's not, there's like, to me, there's just not as much keeping me engaged with it because it's meant to be minimalistic. It's so much more powerful with the movie. And and very powerful immediately after the movie too. Sure. So I would give it more like a like a seven. You know, like it's it's just not it's not as interesting. Like I wouldn't put it on like 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 the astro asteroid field from Empire. You know, I just I wouldn't I wouldn't listen to it as as um, enthusiastically. Right. I would agree actually completely with what Jeremy said. Yeah, I'd I'd probably put the Batman um, for the first one scale from one to 10 score working with the film at a 10 and then for listening enjoyment, I probably put it at an eight. Yeah. 
I think an eight. I think an eight. I'm comfortable sure. with that. Yeah, okay. I think, but I think I agree with Jeremy that like the idea of, like it's not really something that I find myself going back to just because I want to hear the Batman theme, right? Right. Yeah. 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 Um, and now for the Mask of Zorro, this film, right? Yeah. Here. Um, okay. How how does this one work with the film on a scale from one to ten? And how does this one stand out without the visuals for listening enjoyment? Um, I'll well, I'll go first and I'll say yeah. like I think working with the film, it's it's a high high nine. Um, I only don't take it to ten because that whole like showdown sequence we talked about, which I don't really blame the score for, but like, boy, that's that's some dull that's some dull stuff in comparison to everything else the film is offering. Um, and then for uh, <clears throat> listening enjoyment outside of it, I'd probably say about a seven. About a seven. It, interesting, because I'm I'm meeting you right in the middle there. I feel like as as it works with the film is like an eight. Like I feel like it's not my favorite Horner score. You know, like there's there's definitely other ones where I'm like this for me this is Horner's masterpiece. This one is you know it, it's up there, but like more in like the top ten kind of range rather than like the top five kind of range for me. And how and and that's pretty typical of how I would uh, say listening to the score is too, where it's just like, it's, it's fun to listen to. So I put it like at an eight for both, you know, it's like, it's an eight with the movie and it's an eight to listen to. It's if you want to, if you want to listen to an action score, um, specifically with Spanish flavors, you know, this is probably the, the, the first score I'd, 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 I'd point to that I can think of off the top of my head without referencing somebody who's probably more culturally equipped to handle it. <laughs> but you know, it's like, like it, it's good. It's good. Not my sure. favorite, but it's good. I would give it. What was the first prompt? How it works so, with the movie? So working with the film. Yeah. I would probably give it. A, hmm. I think I'm with you, Sparks, on that one. A nine. I think I would give that a nine. Like this is it. It works with the movie, and the only reason why I wouldn't give it a ten is because of the the climactic battle. But I think besides that, everything is jiving with me uh for the score uh, as far as the as far as it is in is in touch with the film right. for the second one i would give it a 10 actually <laughs> um i i really like this score mm-hmm. just independently of the movie sure. i find myself listening to the score a lot it's honestly one of the first scores that i listened to independently of the film mm. just in general i had a i had a freaking what what are they called the disc walkmans like that <laughs> yeah, I would one of those just, di- disc boys. Yeah, one of those, one of those guys. I would just take onto the bus and just have the Soro soundtrack playing on that thing on loop. I really like the score. It's I'm a fun like, one. I'm like super into the score. When I don't, I don't need the visuals with it. That's how much I like it. Like when I was a kid, I don't mind saying this. When I was a kid, I would pretend to sword fight to the score because it's such a, it's such a encapsulation of everything I love about music for me. You know what's so funny? When I was leaving to come to the studio to record the podcast today, I got to the car and I realized I forgot my headphones, so I, I doubled back. And when I turned around from the car, and I'm wearing this, I'm wearing my my shirt tied around my waist, so it it billowed like a cape. Sure. And I remember, and I remember going, you know, dun 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 dun, dun like in my head, like and it was just like because I had just I had just watched the movie, so it was still yeah. fresh in my mind. And it, it's it's something to be said about how like when you have like a really genuinely good adventure score like this 
it just it eats its way into your brain and makes you want to take on that character role. Yeah. I, I and I would say unless somebody's giving like an incredible character performance more than like the 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 actor would, you know, like that's the thing that makes you go and now I'm Zoro because it it's the thing that you can hear yeah. in your head sure. as you go, you know. Maybe and that's, you that's that's why that that's exactly why. That's exactly why I would give the score a 10 mm-hmm. uh, the, a for one. the second prompt. Sure. All right. That will do it uh, for this episode of The Real Score. Um, let's go ahead and do our, our goodbyes. You can find everything else related to the Fake Nerd Network here on the YouTube channel, or if you're listening to us on audio, go check out fakenerdpodcast.com. There's links to all kinds of shows that we're doing all over the place, tons of things to check out. Um, if you are listening to the audio, I encourage you to check out the visual. We try to work in some of the um, pieces of the film that we're discussing, but, you know, like... Uh, I don't think it's absolutely critical or necessary. I think you can get just as much enjoyment out of our audio version. Um, you can find me for all relations to uh, anything attached to the Fake Nerd Network on the socials of Instagram, Twitter, at SparksWitty, S-P-A-R-K-Z-W-D. Uh, Brandon, where can people find you? Oh, Fake Nerd Podcast on all the socials. Um, no, I'm kidding. Um, BC McClure on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, right for CBR.com, AtomicGeekdom.com, and KaijuRamenMedia.com. If you go to my social medias, they're all linked there, and you can just check them out. And then uh, you can find me uh, on Instagram. Uh, Jeremy underscore Wreck of Time is uh, my current username. That might change over. You know, is it Jeremy place. underscore Wreck of Time? I thought it was Jeremy Vellucci underscore Wreck of Time. Don't correct me, but you're right. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's why that's why it's Jeremy Bellucci underscore wreck of time. Um, sure. And then, um, by the way, I am still like constantly fluttering ideas for subproc through my through my notes. I have so much written here that is not organized into like fully fleshed out concepts, but. Um, they are emotionally fully fleshed out, thematically fleshed out. I just haven't like put everything down in a, in a script yet, but that's that's coming back at some point. If if you know you've been if you've been following that in any in any capacity, it, it, if, if it still can, exists. If Jeremy and I can ever sit down and work on some stuff, well, you know what we're, ta- we're we're doing this show now, so I feel like it's it, it's it's easier to, to. It's in the it's in the ether. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Well, that'll do it, and we'll be back with um, 1933's King Kong score. Uh, by Max Steiner. So check us out then, and we're excited to see you. And until then, go ahead and lift up that needle and go go listen to some movies. Yeah, go go listen to James Horner. Like listen to his full discography. It's really fun. It's really illuminating, and it's really fun. <laughs> All right.